This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 174. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lam Ramayasha. And today we are delivering to you a barrage of opinions on Koei Arakoshi's manga barrage. Continuing on our Koei Arakoshi month. Or you could say this might be like a bulge in our month, depending on how you want to pronounce the name. There are many different ways, but we know it as Barrage, and we had a lot of fun talking about the series with Chris and Nick of Weekly Manga Recap, who were big proponents of the series back in the day, like big supporters. And it was fun to revisit the series and see like how Horikoshi grew in his writing from Amagadoki, and then where he'll continue to grow in MHA. And it was a good discussion, pointing out the strengths of Barrage as well as some of its uh, foibles and where it could have improved on. But overall, I think it was a very nice revisit and it was a really great discussion. I want to thank Chris and Nick for coming on for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had a lot of fun talking about Barrage, especially since it has definitely been uh, almost a decade since I read it. So that was was really fun to revisit, and uh, I can't wait for you guys to listen to our discussion. But um, we do have like a few like small house cleaning things that we kind of need to like talk about at the top of the show before we kind of get onto the discussion. Uh, Lum, do you want to start off with yours? Well, I think people should know that we have our LGBTQ episode up early on our Patreon, and oftentimes we put up episodes. Uh, early in advance at our Patreon. Most notably, there was a time last year where we had like several episodes up months in advance. And this is a similar case where this LGBTQ discussion, I recorded it a while ago with our special guests for that episode, Trevor and Alex, appearing the Giratina and Carly and Cats. But because of some busyness in the summer, I wasn't able to get it out on the schedule we had originally. So it is done and is up on Patreon. But because we're in the middle of Koei or Koshi month and there's going to be a horror manga month in October, it won't be out on our public feed until November because we don't really want to double up on podcast releases on a single week. But if you want to listen to it early, we do have it on Patreon. It's a really lovely, fantastic discussion where I and Trevor, Alex, and Carlene, we all, as queer fans of queer manga, we discuss our history with uh, queer media, queer representation, our thoughts on the growing landscape, LGBTQ titles and works, and positive changes we're seeing, things we still want to see more of. It was a really lovely time celebrating LGBTQ manga, and I really loved recording it. Definitely among my favorites. So I would love for you to check it out early if you'd be so inclined, because it'll be a little while before we put it out. So we have it up for early access for about a dollar on the Patreon. So if you are keen to check it out early, definitely do so. Like, I wanted to make the cost of entry uh, as low as possible for folks, because I really love the discussion and think uh, I, I really want a lot of people to hear it. And I hope that when it comes on the public feed, like, uh, it'll have a good response, because like, it was a really great conversation. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm making my way through the discussion right now, and I'm really enjoying it. 
And yeah, I mean, just in general, you should really, uh, you know, if if you ever wanted to find a way to like, uh, you know, support us, uh, really the best way to do that is to go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, just in general, you know, n- normally when we are editing these podcasts and we get to a point where maybe we happen to have some of our discussions edited early, but we're not ready to put them up on our public feed yet. Basically, at the $2 tier, we will normally put up our discussions uh, if we happen to have them edited early. And, you know, that, that kind of depends on, like, our schedules and everything and, like, when we get things done. But basically, when we do have stuff edited early and uh, we're not ready to put them up yet, uh, we'll put them up on that tier at $2. And, uh, I mean, just in general, you know, we also have a bunch of other stuff on the Patreon that you can check out, like all of our bonus podcasts at the $5 tier if you want more, like, new podcasts, like, more new content to listen to. Th- that's available uh, nowhere else. Available exclusively on our Patreon. Um you know, not to turn this into an, an entire ad for our Patreon, but seriously, we do have a lot of really cool stuff up on there. And uh, yeah, stay tuned for some stuff that we have coming up in the future that we might talk about closer to the end of the show. But for now, you know, if you're interested in supporting us and you want to hear some of our more exclusive content, um, you know, please sign up at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. We'd really appreciate it if you did. You know, every dollar helps and we appreciate your patronage. Um and the LGBTQ manga discussion isn't the only podcast that's up for early access for a long time because there's some Lum Squad episodes that are been up early for a little bit. That's and true. I've been meaning to get those out publicly, and hopefully I will in the fall when I'm a little less busy with the work I have now. But if you want to listen to the next couple episodes of Lum Squad early, they're all up on there. Mm-hmm. It's also worth noting that Colton's Another Day and Another Adventure Dragon Ball podcast is also up five episodes early of its public release at any given time, too. So if you want to listen ahead on that show, you can head on our Patreon at our $3 tire to do that as well. Mm-hmm, for sure, for sure. Again, you can find all this at more patreon.com slash manga matters, but we'll, we'll talk more about that kind of closer to the end of the show. Uh, for now, uh, I kind of want to take a moment here real quickly to kind of talk about uh, two cool guest spots I did for some other podcasts. Uh, the first one I want to mention is that, uh, I guess, kind of speaking of Dragon Ball, I was on another Dragon Ball show called We Got a Podcast, Dragon Ball from A to Z, with uh, past guest Randy and his friend Doug. And basically, if you want more Dragon Ball content, you should really listen to the show, by the way. Uh, I've been really enjoying it. And uh, right now, they're kind of going through all the movies. And I just happened to be on the talk about Bio Broly in particular and why it's actually a pretty decent movie. And it's not the worst Dragon Ball Z movie ever made. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very fun episode. I had a lot of fun recording with Randy and Doug about a movie that I bought on DVD back in 2005. Uh, and yeah, you know, if you if you like listening to us just talk about Dragon Ball in general, you know, g- go listen to that episode and j- just go listen to their show in general. Again, I've been really enjoying it. And uh, I guess the other thing I want to talk about really quickly is that I was also on an episode of Secret Histories of Nerd Mysteries, where I was on in particular to uh, talk about because uh, I uh, one of the hosts, Brenda, is uh you know, doing like a short run of podcasts where they basically have on, uh, you know, different like guest hosts to talk about whatever movies they want to talk about. And uh, I, I think I talk about it on the episode. But at first, I, I thought about talking about Castle in the Sky because that is one of my favorite movies. Um, 
But then I then I realized, you know what? I think I want to talk about Yu-Gi-Oh! And I think I want to talk about Dark Side of Dimensions. And so Brenda was so nice enough to check out Dark Side of Dimensions and let me gush about Yu-Gi-Oh! for almost an hour and a half. So if you also can't get enough of us talking about Yu-Gi-Oh!, uh, you should really go listen to that episode of Secret Histories of Nerd Mysteries. Again, we'll, we'll leave links to like both these podcasts in the show notes for anybody who wants to check them out. But uh, suffice to say, I had a, I had a lot of fun uh, being on both these podcasts and talking about uh, things that I like. And uh, yeah, go, go listen to them. And uh, yeah, I think that's going to be about it for anything we have to talk about at the top of the show. But I don't think we should stall any longer. And I think we should start... Uh, Trekking through the land of Industria and making our way through our barrage podcast. What do you, what do you say, Lum? Mm-hmm. Let's blast off to the world of Barrage and explore this astronomically interesting adventure from Koei Arakoshi. Ever wondered what the Prince and the Popper would be like as a manga set in space? Well, Korohi Koikoshi did, and we are revisiting his manga Barrage. Is an example of his rising star, or is it a reason why this series fell and burned out into a black hole in the pages of Weekly Shonen Jump? Well, we're here to find out, and joining us to revisit the series are none other than the hosts of Weekly Manga Recap, Chris and Nick. Oh, that's us. That's oh. us. Do you want to go first? Should I go first? I, 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 well, I'm storming the stage right now. I'm not waiting for you to give me a signal. I'm up okay. there. I'm up there right now. I'm ready to play the game, Pat, right. or who, whoever is... It's it's Drew, it's Drew Carey who runs it now, right? Uh, whatever. Uh, I, I don't care. <laughs> Spin the wheel, Nick. I believe in you. Don't wait for them. Just start spinning it. <laughs> uh, man, what is this? A crossover episode? <laughs> Yeah, it is a veritable podcast crossover between us and you guys. And yeah, it's really cool to have you both on to discuss the series. Oh, thank you for having well, thank us. Thank you for on. having us. Yeah. Yeah, especially since, you know, you guys cover MHA on your show from pretty much the beginning of when it got added to the digital magazine. Uh, and you also covered Barrage back in the day as well on your show. And it's been about a good 10 years since the original one shot for Barrage came out, about nine since. Uh, it ended its serialization, Woof. so it's a good time to revisit it as part of our ongoing Koei Horikoshi month, uh, covering his earlier works and spinoffs tangentially related to MHA. So yeah, and this was an interesting one to revisit for sure, because it comes at an interesting point in Horikoshi's career in terms of like how he was feeling creatively and artistically at the time, but also is such a significant series in terms of its place in manga history, because this was one of like the first manga that Viz Media took a chance on to simulpup right from the start, back in the old Shonen Jump Alpha days. And that really means it set a trend for other series to follow, leading the way to the Jumpstart initiative the following year. And eventually the current state of the Shonen Jump 
vault and simul pubs we have basically the entire magazine and every new series that gets run in japan gets simul published worldwide mm-hmm. yeah i was just trying to double check and uh yeah it looks like this was like the first like new series that viz picked up for a simul pub back in the day that wasn't like already running so yeah that's that that's really that's really monumental actually mm-hmm I believe that it was, yeah. And yeah, that would have been the show when it was still Shonen Jump Alpha. So yeah. we would have gotten the, the chapters two weeks after they came out in Japan. Yeah, because it didn't transition to doing it weekly uh, or like just the same week until 2013. So it, it is such an interesting point in time. Uh, like, And it's same year as like they tried a few other series that just started at that time, I think. Takamakahara was the next one after this, also a short-lived one, uh, covered on the show before. Cross-manage. Red Sprite got the same treatment. Um, there and there were a few different series that they kind of had, like, uh, they started eventually doing the first three, and then some would get picked up. Like, We Never Learn was like that. They did the first three off the bat, and then it took a few weeks for them to make the decision that they were going to simul-publish every single chapter and uh, so then we kind of had a brief period of time when there were like two chapters each week. But yeah, generally at first it was just very random, not not very random, I should say, but very select uh, series were and they would just do them until they finished. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And it's interesting that Barrage was the first one they tried this with in terms of taking a new series from an unproven author, essentially, and, you know, trying it out and seeing if it'll catch on with a global audience without like any guarantee that it'll be a long lasting hit. Mm-hmm. It is so interesting because Horikoshi's only period series at the time was a Makidoki Zoo and that only you know, lasted five volumes. So I think maybe they just saw in the premise of it, the makings of a potential hit overseas. But of course, unfortunately that didn't last. Mm-hmm. This was probably the safest pick out of uh out of that serialization round because besides this you have like uh, what is it uh koisome momiji and then you have the start of psyche kusumo which could you imagine living in a world where viz like actually you know p- picked up psyche kusumo for a cyber pub yeah they bet on the wrong horse by not choosing psyche because that one lasted a good couple of years i mean i don't blame them for not picking that up because like uh i mean probably still like this right now but like it, it just doesn't seem like gag manga really do very well for them and that probably would have been held to do like every week yeah. or whatever <laughs> a lot of humor doesn't translate well yeah you you talk about like what if they had picked up psyche k i want to know what it would be like if we were looking back and saying man the first ever series that viz tried to do the simo publishing thing on a new series for koiso and momiji that one <laughs> <laughs> Romantic comedy, super etchy series that I only very vaguely remember. Yeah. It makes me think of that one series that they definitely skipped out on that I can't remember the name of. I think it was called Lady Justice. Yeah, that was one when they were still doing... That was during the Jumpstart initiative period. That They skipped that one entirely. That came out... I forget around what time I came around it. I think it was around 2017, 2018. It says 2015 on my end. Oh, really? Yeah, around the same time that uh, Devilly Man first uh, premiered. Devilly Man, yeah. I liked Devilly Man personally. I I wish we got more of that. Every so often, uh, there's a, a growing sheet that tracks 
basically like all the series that kind of started and jump. I think it starts at like 2010 or something like that and shows like the ones that kind of made over here. And usually it's like how long they ran for. And every so often I'll scan through it and I'll just see things. And I'm like, I, I know I read something of Amalgam of Distortion, but I don't remember anything about <laughs> oh, it. I'm man. Like, There's so many. I'm, I'm like, I know Judo's was a thing, but I, what yep. was it? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we might have to like cover some of those at some point. The, the, there, there are yeah. definitely there are definitely some of those series where I, you know, when I first read the first three chapters of those and thought like, man, if only, if, what if we got more of those? You know, like just it's it, it's fun to think about. But going back to Lady Justice real quick, yeah, I I feel like I remember like looking that up at one point and being like. I could see why they skipped out on this. We're, we're probably not missing too much. Yeah, I read the early chapters. It was not very good. <laughs> it was just like an edgy attempt at a superhero manga. I mean, they also skipped Yuna for the same reason. Yeah. So, And that ended up actually being successful. L- leave that to seven C's. It's fine. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, taking us back to 2012, that was an interesting year for Shonen Jump because, I mean, just talking about Psyche K, there is a lot of big series that began serialization that year. Haikyuu, Assassination, Classroom, Food Wars. Series that would be hits for years to come in Jump. And so Broch debuted in this very competitive time. And all equally satisfying endings as well. Can well, we add that? <laughs> maybe not some more than others, but... but uh, better than Barrages, I would say, at least. <laughs> Well, it depends on how you look at it, really. (laughs) I I guess, yeah. But we we could talk more about that probably in a little bit. Right. But, yeah, so Barats came out at this time where there were actually a lot of new blood that would be kind of staples of the brand and magazine from thenceforth. And, yeah, being in that competitive environment, it makes sense why Barrage didn't last because as a battle manga in that period I mean that's still a time in which you had One Piece, Naruto, and Bleach all running at the same time and on top of that you still had Reborn and Gintama and Sket Dance and all these other longer running series these bigger series some battle adjacent even so a lot of competition in this vein so I could see why Broj was struggling to stand out looking at the table of contents from back then there's only like maybe four series at a time in the magazine that were really like kind of struggling newcomers. So very little room if you weren't catching an audience right from the start. Oh yeah, for sure. It is a little bit weird to look back on that time period because we've kind of gotten so used to in the past couple of years, just like, well, just everything is new in, in, in Shonen Shove now because everything ended, you know, a, a lot of the uh, stuff that was mainstays that started in that time period or even, you know, a few years after or, of course, the stuff that was a few years before. Uh, that's all gone now, except One yeah. Piece. Uh, but um, <laughs> I mean, My Hero Academia is the second oldest series that's still woof. currently running that's being published in magazines. It, t- it took me a little while to get out of the mindset of, okay, well, you got to think of how this fits and this fits and how successful this series is uh, and versus how successful all the mainstays at the time are. And now it's, it's just kind of like, yeah, don't really worry about that. It's just like if a, if a series that comes along that people like, it's going to stick around and that's just kind of it because there is so little that has established itself as a like pillar of the magazine anymore. Uh, and also just like because of the way that 
you know, it's it's been almost 10 years since this time period. The magazine just operates a little bit differently now because, you know, there's the digital versions of it and also just series kind of tend to last less time um, for a, a lot of different reasons that I don't fully understand. Uh, we've had a few conversations, uh, Chris and I have, uh, before wondering like, why is it like this? Like, well, things are different now. I don't know exactly why, because I'm not an industry insider, but I know that they are different. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the pivot to digital and to a global audience has definitely changed the metrics for success and the longevity of different series, I think. So it is really hard to just try and gauge based on sales or the table of contents alone of like how long a series is going to last. They can prove sometimes to be a good indicator, but then sometimes you have outliers where it's like, hey, this series is not doing as well when you look at sales numbers in this other series, but it's still lasting while this other series is gone. So what are the metrics that are keeping some series and removing others? It's an interesting thing to think about. But to turn us back to 2012, and I think you guys, I mean, you're all basically reading this series from the get-go, I think. I want to ask you guys, like, what were your first impressions of Raj at the time uh, your experiences reading it when it was first being serialized and in revisiting it for this podcast for discussion, like have your feelings changed since then? Uh, well, I can tell you that I, I remember I absolutely loved the series when it first started up. I was so ecstatic about it and so uh, excited that there was this new battle series uh, that did a couple of things differently from the stuff that I had read at the time that I like immediately was like, I need to make a video about this. Uh, I need to, you know, get on this right away to, you know, get some people, more people's attention on this and get some people's attention on the fact that they can go and read it online on an official source as opposed to, you know, pulling up the scanlations which they would have done anyway, but yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. The scanlations where they call it, you know, because the original title is Sensei no Baruji and the scanlators translated it as bulge. Bulge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the great sci-fi royalty name bulge. So yeah, I think, I think Viz made the right move in just calling the series barrage. Yeah. It's a sensible adaptation of the name that, you know, my, not you could probably translate either way, but this is a workable translation that you can take seriously. It's akin to how uh, Frenner Show and translator David Evelyn, who works on Undone the Luck, uh, the name of Andy could have been translated as Undy. You could have pronounced yeah. <laughs> it in that same way, but David very much was like, uh, no, uh, I don't think people will be able to take this seriously. So he chose to localize it as Andy instead. So similarly, uh, I think they made a smart decision and translate the name how they did. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I remember when it first coming out, really liking it. As you kind of mentioned, this was like our first real opportunity to explore stuff that wasn't just like the major name battle shonen series at that point in time pretty much so it was kind of refreshing to get something a little bit different and i remember just being very impressed by the art uh nowadays i i think we all kind of can see horikoshi's art style and he has had several assistants who have gone on to make series in jump who reflect his art style in certain ways so it's it's something that is relatively commonplace now but it, it really is important to stress that like at the time 
nothing else in Jump looked like this. Nothing else had the way it, it drew these sharp lines and these edges and, and the, the shading that was used. It, it was just a very striking visually series throughout it. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree. Like, even revisiting the series, I think the art, even with how much Horikoshi has continued to evolve and improve since then, like, there are some really standout action moments and just intense expressions. Like, he really was a fully formed artist, even by this point in his career. Mm-hmm. I guess just for me personally, um, I'm trying to think because I'm, you know, as I've talked about in our previous Omagadoki Zoo episode, uh, I was already a fan of Horikoshi by this point, uh, thanks to that series. And uh, I don't think it really hit me at the time, like how big of a deal it was that, you know, his was the first new series to be simulpubbed in Jump by Viz at the time. Uh, it's just really interesting to think about. Um, but I'm trying to think because, like, I think it took me a little bit still at this point to, like, actually finally get a subscription to the magazine. Because I, I I think I was still at the point where, like, I was still trying to catch up on everything that was running in the magazine. So that way I would be actually ready to, like, read everything by the time I got a subscription. So I, I, I hate to admit it, but I think I was still reading scans at the time. But I I do think there were like one or two weeks where like maybe scans would come out a little later than normal because I looking back at my collection of jump issues like I have at least like three, four issues from 2012 that I bought randomly. Uh, One of them being for the last chapter of Takamakahara because I was reading that week to week and scans were late on that. And I was like, I'm just going to buy this issue or whatever because it was it was easy. Um, and I want to say I did it for at least one or two chapters of Barrage, but uh, I don't know. I, I, I look back on my reading habits and I'm just like, man, you I don't know. Maybe I just didn't have the money for it at that point because I wasn't like I don't think I had a very stable job at that point. Uh, so I'm, I don't know. But I, I do think back and I'm just like, man, you should have you should have like gotten this sooner. And I kind of regret not doing so because it would have been cool to have. Uh, it would have been cool to have, like, full runs of some of these series, like, through, like, the back issues and everything. I think that everyone who makes the uh, switch from doing scans and fanlations over to doing the official stuff and then sticks with that is like, man, I should have done this sooner. So, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Um, I wouldn't worry too much about it. No, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, as far as I ha- how I felt about the series starting off, I mean... I do remember seeing people talk about this online specifically because of, like you know, the, the big shocking twist that kind of happens in the first chapter and the whole thing with this series being a Prince and the Popper type of thing, I think was just something that was cool because like, I, I don't know of any other manga that try to attempt to tell that kind of story. Maybe there are some out there and I just don't know about them, but it was, it was definitely something I hadn't seen in manga before. And I was like, oh, this... Like, I, I think that was, like, the big hook. And I don't know, like, I, I remember liking it for the time it ran. And, yeah, I don't know. I, I like, as, like, as far as, like, you know, revisiting it for the podcast, I do think I'm a little more down on it. E- even though I, I do understand that, like, Horikoshi was probably told, like, three chapters ahead of time to end this. And I think it clearly shows that, like, he did not want to end the series at this point. Like, we'll probably get into this later, but, like... The ending of Barrage really feels like the ending of an arc, you know, less than, like, the ending of an entire series. Like, it it, fe- it feels like 
there's more that you probably could have done with the story that he probably had more planned, but it's unfortunate because this is just kind of where we had to edit it. Obviously, I don't think he really had the choice, so that's unfortunate. But with that being said, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm a little more down on it, but I'm sure as we'll get a little further on in the discussion, I there 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 are things that I like about it, but overall I think I think I still prefer Omaga Doki Zoo over this if we're if we're comparing both of his earlier works, but that's just me. Yeah, I think fair. And yeah, um, it'll be interesting to go into that later part as well, like the ending of Barrage, because definitely, yeah, there's a lot left, I think, open to exploration that Horikoshi didn't get to. Uh, a lot of things that are set up that really don't get a follow-through, it really did feel. And especially, it's interesting to me, because this series gets a color page for the 10th chapter. Yeah. And then it ends six weeks later. And it makes me wonder, what was Horikoshi being told in, in terms of like, the trajectory of the series. Was there a point where they were like, hey, this might be something we'll keep around for a while. And then suddenly they made a decision. Oh, actually, we need to, to end this by the next serialization round. It definitely reads to me like with this arc in uh, Marcel, like he was intending for it to last longer and explore the characters he introduced, namely Black, with a little more time. But then it ultimately had that truncated ending that i think of course led those chapters to be what they were so we'll get into more of that later to just describe my experience though because i'm kind of the outlier here among this group because i didn't read barrage while i was being serialized my experience with barrage though is quite intertwined with uh, weekly manga recap which is part of the reason why i was so interested in how you guys on is I My impressions of it were definitely formed by listening to your show and listening to you guys discuss Barrage and praise it so highly, be very excited and very disappointed at its ending, but still finding a lot of joy in those final couple chapters when you were recapping it on the show. But I didn't seek out the series even for a long time after that. In fact, uh, I hadn't read Barrage when MHJ started, but it's because I had an awareness of Koei Horikoshi and knew him as the Barrage guy that was praised so highly uh, on your show and by other people who had read it. That's what got me to check MHJ like right as the first chapters were being scanlated. So it was kind of like right on the ground floor for that. But when it comes to me reading Barrage... It actually wasn't until I think maybe five or six years ago, you guys were doing a prize contest on WMR, I think in coordination with Ace's unofficial Asamu fan club, in which Chris was giving away copies of Barrage to winners. And then I was uh, one of the people who won copies of that. And so, yeah, I got volumes of Barrage from Chris uh, through that. And, you know, you signed the covers and everything and wrote messages on the volumes. Were they hilarious? I don't remember. Uh, well, I can read them out loud to you uh, oh, on no. the first what volume. What if I put something private in there? All right. And Chris's social security number is? <laughs> <laughs> if only there were uh, some 
If only there were some interesting things. No, there are fine comments. Uh, the first one he wrote, enjoy the book. They're better than e-robot, I promise, which I agree with. And, uh, oh, so witty back then. Oh, man, the highest of praises sung by Chris of Weekly Margarita. Better than e-robot. Oh, yeah, oh man. Well, that, they should put are. that as a quote on the back of these books whenever they repent it. That is a glowing recommendation, a glowing endorsement. Oh, man, if if people had known that it was better than e-robot back in 2012, then maybe they would have given it a chance. <laughs> e-robot didn't, wouldn't exist for a few years, but people were like, I mean, I've never heard of it, but if they're saying it's better than it, then it must be good. Also, did E-Robot run for less time than Barrage? Did E-Robot only get like yeah. 14 chapters? Oh, man. Look, so there you go. You're Not only not only is it high praise, it's also accurate. Yeah. More yeah. successful than E-Robot, we could say. <laughs> yeah. Look, look, r- real quick. Um, As much as I love the shit on E-Robot, I would love to read the rest of it, actually. <laughs> Just, 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 just for the novelty. Out of, I was gonna say, out of morbid curiosity, or like for science. <laughs> yeah, for science, we gotta, we gotta learn the science of what makes that robot so erotic. I, I don't well, know. I... It was partially the elbow uh, or the armpit, <laughs> I believe, if I remember the the initial sketch in the manga. There was something that was like the most erotic armpit or something like that. This is like that's Ugh. the moment you're like, all right, <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> Good luck, but I'm gone. I don't know. I maybe I maybe it's, maybe it's just me, but I, I think boob missiles are kind of funny. But that's just me. They can work in some contexts. It, it's sort of funny in Mazinger Z, which <laughs> an early progenitor of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, sorry, you can go on. Oh, and in the second volume, you wrote, and remember, Unahana is dead and never coming back. Which, oh, that's my thing. Uh, with a big emphatic <laughs> I wanted, to, I wanted point. to carry you through the messages. <laughs> <laughs> that's good, though, that we've got like uh, hard evidence that I was calling the uh, latest bleach twist uh, half a dozen years ago. So yeah, no, you really did call it. I mean, she is dead, but she might be coming back. Or you never know. <laughs> You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, how times have changed. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it's after I received those volumes, that's when I read it. And I think my impressions of it then are about the same as now. I'm, although I actually I may even appreciate it more now. Like I enjoyed it, reading it back then. I thought that the characters were very likable, very strong. I thought it was interesting. Uh, Horikoshi's art was very dynamic, even back then. And he had some really interesting character designs. And even with the direction the story takes and like having to rush to an ending, I think there were some still very compelling emotional moments and a good core focus on this theme of family that I think carries through start to finish with the series that I think I I've resonated with very much and I thought came from an authentic place and was explored very well. And yeah, that's how I feel about it now. But even with more context of like having read this after going to Makidoki Zoo, this is where my opinions kind of separate from Colton's in that I feel like Barrage, for me, is an improvement on everything that I found lacking in Omagadoki in terms of the characters and their development and then having like kind of a stronger narrative focus and more compelling emotional beats and plot moments. It is definitely lacking in some of the more imaginative character designs of Magadoki and that kind of playfulness that series had. But in terms of being a story that I found very compelling, uh, Barrage definitely, even revisiting it, I just found it like very compelling. And I also found it, yeah, I would 
have enjoyed or wanted to continue this story if it had lasted longer based on these first two volumes. Mm-hmm. But before we delve further into our thoughts on the series, let's describe the premise of Braj for the uninitiated. And I'll turn it back to you guys. How would you pitch the series or like describe it to someone who it's Los is Los Angeles, 1947. <laughs> the Kaiser has struck huh? again. <laughs> what? But help from outer space. What are you doing? Might just be what they need. I didn't read the manga, Nick. I don't. <laughs> I completely forgot. I'm just. I'm just ripping. Okay. Um. Well. So there is this planet, and I'll be honest. Uh, my my second time reading through this, I caught on to what I believe are a couple of reasons that the series did not do well. One of which is just that the initial premise is honestly not that compelling uh, in terms of the setting. Now, the gimmick of the plot developments, very interesting in terms of what unfolds. The characters are what shine in this series, how they develop, and also just like the way that you are introduced to a number of them. But in terms of what the series is like in big picture terms about... It's a space adventure series, and that's just kind of it. Um, we're introduced to these concepts like there's this, uh, there are these kingdoms, and uh, there are these various different pl- uh, planets that never get visited because the series got canceled after two <laughs> volumes, and so we never <laughs> leave the initial planet that they start off on. Uh, but uh, we're in the midst of this kind of intergalactic conflict, and uh, so... Amongst the political turmoil, there is a prince who we get to know very, very, very briefly. But our main focus is on this ki- this uh, street kid named Barrage, who uh, is trying to just make enough money to support all of these uh, little uh, urchin kids that he has uh, essentially adopted, despite the fact that he can barely make ends meet for himself. And uh, so while he's trying to look after them, he is suddenly approached by the prince of this planet kingdom uh this prince who happens to look exactly like him and sound exactly like him and the prince is just trying to escape his pos- his responsibilities and so he offers barrage the chance to take his place and become the new prince while he just gets to go fuck off somewhere else and uh abandon all of his responsibilities and he's like you just be the new prince and then as soon as he gives him this implement called the Oh gosh, it's such a weird name. The Org, I think. Mm. Or I think that's how you Some, pronounce it. The yeah. Org, yeah. Oh, I called it Orgu, like it was Grogu <laughs> from Star Wars. <laughs> I was like, the Orgu will save us. So as soon as the prince hands uh, th- this uh, over to, uh, uh, sorry, I should I, I should say that I've accidentally spoiled the entire series by calling him <laughs> yeah. Raj. He's called Astro, Astro this yeah. time. We, we'll talk so, about it later, but that that twist, I think. It's it's one of those things where, like, even the characters are, like, mixed up by it, so I think it's fine, you know? So, Astro is what the main character uh, identifies as throughout the series, and so Astro is approached by the Prince Barrage, who gives him over this, uh, this tool-slash-relic called the Org 
that will identify him as the prince. And as soon as he hands it over, he goes, yay, I'm free from having to do anything. He gets shot in the head and dies. <laughs> it's <laughs> a brutal moment, though. Yeah. Like, such a good beat. Like, he's not only does the bullet, you know, shoot him through the head, it, like, severs his arm that just handed off the orc to Astro, too. And then he plummets, presumably to his death, off the roof of that building. So, just a brutal, like, sudden... <laughs> moment of violence mid-chapter <laughs> so no take backs for astro <laughs> no <laughs> nope <laughs> uh who ends up having to act as the new prince but fortunately uh it turns out that he is able to access the secret abilities of the org which turn it into uh at first a lance and then eventually it turns out it can take other forms uh and so he can use that to bring peace to the kingdom uh save the princess uh cast ganondorf back into the shadows etc 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 um and that's basically the first chapter and i know that we'll get a little bit more uh into it but very quickly it turns from astro is not actually the prince he's got to keep the secret to astro just tells his secret to the king and uh, his attendant, who is named Tiamat. And the three of them together kind of have to deal with this situation and figure out what they're going to do uh, now that someone has unlocked the ability to uh, use this sacred weapon of sorts who uh, is not the Blood Prince. So I I have two things I want to bring up actually right off the bat. So I guess one of them's more of an observation and the next one is a question that actually now that I think about it does kind of confuse me and we probably don't have an answer for it. Um, but uh, what, one thing I, I think uh, for anyone who's interested in my read through threads, I think I pointed this out on Twitter that uh, and, and maybe you guys might disagree with me on this. I don't know. It could just be a me thing. But like because that was one of the things that like really got me interested in this manga was 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 that beat of oh th- this prince that looks just like Astro comes up to him th- hands him the title of prince basically and is just just shot dead immediately and and that's a good beat but I don't know I feel like and I, and I totally get like Astro you know he would he, he would have trouble like taking all this in because it's a lot to take in you literally watch the death of somebody and I totally get that I feel like his expression like his reaction to everything is a little too comedic for me. I don't know if you guys feel the same way at all. I think it's a look of disbelief more than it's meant to come across as comedic. However, I do agree with you that in terms of pacing, I think that that secretive events happens to quit. And it feels like Astro is kind of just being shoved from like the introduction of getting to know the character right into the main trust of what the story needs to be and it happens very suddenly and feels like he's being kind of just dragged along rather than that uh natural sequence of events leading to that Mm -hmm. so yeah i definitely would agree with you on on that sense that it feels a little awkward Mm -hmm. we do get a moment before that where astro is working for a boss who's a complete jerk basically and has an opportunity to basically stand up for his boss against somebody else to kind of give us some kind of glimpse as to what Astro's sort of moral code is that he is going to stand up on the behalf of somebody who, by all rights, he should not need to. Um, so we do get an idea of the sort of person he is. 
And I can understand in a, in a first chapter of a series, although they're longer than your normal chapter, you don't have a ton of time to really sit through everything. So maybe the beat could have been handled differently. I just find the execution of just quite literally the execution uh, being so spot on. <laughs> like it's, it's a shot where you're like, holy crap. And mm-hmm. you just watch the body <laughs> fall off a cliff and you're like, damn. All right. Let's uh, you got my attention, if nothing else. Yeah, the visual is just so brutal i do think it's a great illustration <laughs> to to be fair if i saw somebody die right in front of me i'd probably have the same face actually um but so here the the, the thing that now i'm wondering because uh i don't think we ever touch on this like d- do we ever figure out like who assassinates the prince no that's a lingering question that i don't think they ever get back to because we do see a shot of the assassin like react to the fact that it is shot the prince, but then like Astro is being taken, you know, as the prince away to the castle. But like we don't really, yeah, have that follow up of like, okay, who was it that shot him? Like, what is the reason for that? What's going on? Oh, because it's because it's not black because black doesn't carry a very obvious gun around. So. And the silhouette is completely different too. It, it's just a mystery that was never gone back to in the series. It seems like it was pretty clear that there was more planned for the original Prince Barrage. There's just like a throwaway line at the end, like, hey, who knows? He could still be out there. We never found the body. And you're like, okay, yeah, that was clearly something you intended to get to. Otherwise, why would you bring it up now? Yeah, I mean, especially since we learned that the fake prince was made out of dark energy. So what is the properties of his body really? Like he isn't necessarily flesh and blood then. So could he, uh, yeah, it's totally possible he could survive or regenerate. He could be out there in the world. So mm. yeah, I guess that's true. My working theory now is that Snipe from My Hero Academia probably took him out. Now it's Lady, it's Lady Nagant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there we go. This is what she was doing. And this was one of the missions given to her by the Secret Service Agency and MHA or whatever. <laughs> Public safety. Like, oh, you have to go to these like alien planets and assassinate these princess res. It's a matter of uh, national security for Japan. You got to do it. All right. If it's if it'll save Japan, I'll kill this child from a space planet. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'll go to this completely other planet away from us. Um yeah, I think the first chapter at least is um I think it's a good start. Like, I mean, clearly like when I read this almost a decade ago, um, you know, I mean, I I do wonder if like if I wasn't already into Horikoshi if I probably would have like latched onto this as much. I I probably still would have been interested, but a- again, for for my experience, it it did help that like I already really liked Horikoshi stuff and I was desperately wanting to see more of his comics so there's that but i think on its own it's it's a pretty decent first chapter i think it's a great introduction to astro as a character i think it portrays him in a very likable and compelling light because yeah we see him defend this awful boss of his who just treating him like right at the beginning of the chapter but he stands up for him against the alien noble then we visit his family and learn more of his circumstances we have a great scene with him and Chima, one of the main orphan girls, uh, kids that we really 
get time with where he's you know she has recognized that astro is hiding something and he's like having a tough time and she tries to offer him food because he didn't eat before and then astro kind of gives this big you know speech about oh well thank you so much but i gotta repay you back somehow and then he basically winds it into like conversation with like all these different things he he wants to give her and then says you know i can't give you all this right now so here take this food he gives the food that she gave him back to her in exchange and i think that's just a sweet scene of like showing like kind of his selflessness and how much he really cares for these kids and recognizes that they are also concerned for him and is trying to you know give them peace of mind too and comfort them too so I think we really established well their uh, his circumstances, and then you know also when he gets roped into being thought of as the prince, and then he's taken to the castle, and Tiamat is bad mounting the prince. Like Faraj, like stands up for him, even though from all accounts, like he was a bad person. Like he, it it really does like rub him. He does like get set off by the fact that Tiamat says that like a kid like him has no place in the family it's like hey don't disparage a member of your own family don't say that no one has a place in there i think that we establish his values very well and how like he truly believes in this ideal of family and that is something that is important to him he cherishes a whole lot astro is very single-minded and a very simple character because he is all about family and he reminds you that he is all about family constantly. Uh, I, I think that it is done effectively in the sense that you understand where he's coming from whenever he makes an important decision. And that influence on how he is as a person is always paced through very effectively when it comes up, when he has to make a tough choice in the middle of a battle or when he has to make a tough choice in terms of whether he should be selfish or preserving, or if she should put his neck in the line for even complete strangers. And uh, he, you know, is constantly surprising the people around him because he makes what on paper seems like a stupid decision, but it is the decision that is very obviously the correct one in his heart because of the ideals that he has. The way that he talks about family sometimes is a little bit excessive. Mm -hmm. Just a little, yeah. But because it comes through in the clutch on in those big important dramatic moments it ultimately is very endearing this is kind of like because this is a sci-fi series where the main character has like a single thing that they're talking about all the time this is like if ian zero were done well essentially (laughs) shiki's always talking about oh friendship 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 and it's just like he just says the word friends and it doesn't really tie into how he operates he just always like because they're my friend and that's just just kind of it whereas Astro is able to take that and jump to this person cares about their family. Therefore, I feel like I can trust who they are or uh, this person, you know, I can't I I can't trust them because they dismiss this. And so it's able to be applied in a number of different ways as opposed to I just want to be friends with everyone because friend, 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 friend. So Yeah. And Eden Zero comes across more shallow because it's like, oh, friendship is just this ideal that we don't really see that reflected in a lot of events that like justifies like why that's important. Here in Barrage, I can understand why Astro values family so much as an orphan child who just was 
utterly alone for a lot of his life, but then found a found family in these other fellow orphan kids he started taking care of. And that gave him like a sense of place that gave him comfort and company. And that's why he cherishes that. And then we see in different relationships in the series, different family relationships, like examples of how relationships between family members can give people strength and what Astro is fighting to protect in terms of these relationships that, you know, are like in the center of these different communities, like are like what are driving people to do what they're doing. And we see all different examples of like how people are motivated by family to take certain courses of actions, like Nina and the other women who have their husbands kidnapped and they have to basically work as kidnappers for dead rock and whatever uh, in order to protect them. Then we see that with Tico, who, you know, is fighting to avenge her foster mother who is murdered and also for the sake of her foster father. So I think we see good examples of that that contrast and complement uh, Astro and his values well. And yeah, to also point out an example of like how it's used in an effective emotional moment, like Astro deciding to give up the org uh, when Dead Rock is like holding like a, all the people hostage. That is a moment that ends up panning out because like his choice to let that go. You know, even though it's more of a like Tiamat was telling him, hey, you need to think of yourself first and protecting yourself first over other people when push comes to self because the ultimate goal here is to, to liberate Industria. But Astro's selfless goal and that selfless choice in that moment to protect those people gives Nina an opportunity to basically attack and distract Dreadnought basically inspires other people to fight back to protect what they love and cherish and say what Astra does. And that gives him the opportunity to, you know, land that finishing blow. So it's a choice that pans out and validates the fact that he cherishes those values and holds protecting that so strongly. Mm-hmm. I just want to say, first off, um, this would be Vin Diesel's favorite manga. Uh. Oh, yeah, no. You know, <laughs> forget the Imperial Royal family. I'm surprised the twist was that Astro is not related to the Toretto family. I mean, forget John Cena. Maybe Astro is also Dom's long-lost little brother. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, but I also just wanted to say, just kind of going back to Omagadoki Zoo just a little bit, I do think the thing that Horikoshi improves upon with this series is the fact that, you know, because as fun as I think Omagadoki Zoo is, one of the things that I wasn't super into was just kind of the fact that, like, um, you know, the characters are fun, but, like, I'm not really, like, super emotionally attached to a lot of them, as compared to at least some of the characters in Barrage, where, like, I think Barrage, even though I would personally say he's not, like, the most interesting character, you could make the argument that, like, he's pretty rote as far as, like, protagonists and shonen manga go, but, like, you, he's still a good character you can, like, get behind, and, like, you can feel, like, how much he really cares about you know, just fa- like the concept of family in general, like you have a good grasp on like what he values and he's an he's an easier character to get behind than compared to like, you know, Sheena, who the characters in Omakadoki Zoo try to convince you like, oh, no, he's actually like a good guy, even though he's kind of an asshole. But you should you should still like him. Like, I feel I feel like the characters in Barrage don't have to like sit around and tell me how great Barrage is. I just 
I, I can clearly tell that, like, he's a good person that, like, I can get behind at the very least, you know? Yeah, no, we see what a good person he is firsthand. Like, we're very much following his story, and there isn't, like, a second-hand protagonist that is meant to reflect and learn more about him, like in Omake Dokizu. And, yeah, I think while Barrage shares a lot of similarities and hence doesn't stand out terribly in the context of other showing protagonists, I think he's still a very compelling character and a good example of one in terms of, like, how he inspires people and how he has values that you can appreciate and leads to these kind of nice feel-good type of moments, I think. But yeah, I mean, to contrast with Amagadoki, that was kind of... That, that does have, like, a kind of the Hiromashima-esque, like, emphasis on friendship as a guiding force where it doesn't really feel super substantially justified in terms of, like, what is depicted in the text, uh, especially in the case of how Sheena actually treats the his supposed friends early on and then, like, we're later supposed to understand of, like, oh, no, he, he really does care about them and he fights to protect them and whatnot. I think Barrage more successfully has this theme of family explored through Astro and then through his actions, like actually shows us, okay, yeah, we see follows through here and we see how this relates to the other characters in this manga. And then we see how he grows through these examples. Mm -hmm. The series at the very least has a way more well-realized emotional core that is a lot easier to get behind, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you say that, uh, and obviously, uh, a lot of people didn't seem to connect with it. That's, and, that's uh, fair, yeah. So, at the time that uh, the, the series got canceled, I was like, oh, come on, it just, why didn't, why don't people like this? And, like I said, looking back, I think that I figured it out, and it really just kind of comes down to, we know who Astro is, is and, you know, what's important to him, but there's not really an easy thing to latch onto that is immediately instantly compelling about this premise unfortunately yeah yeah um the conflict that's going on this integral this battle of intergalactic this of interplanetary war we never really get a good idea of who the major players are what's motivating them what's going on and other than the very nebulous concept of just saving everything and preserving the kingdom we don't know what astro is supposed to really be doing yeah and i think that that's something that uh horikoshi improved upon immensely when it came time to do my hero academia because a you don't have the difficulty of pitching people on a science fiction series where you have to explain like there's these alien races and there's this thing and this thing and this thing you just say like a bunch of people have superpowers and people are like, okay, I know what that is because I'm already familiar with that concept. But then you have our main character doesn't have superpowers. He wants to be a superhero. He has a long-term goal that he wants to work towards. Whereas Astro doesn't really because, I mean, it's something that is definitely endearing to him as a character. But his needs are met pretty much right away. Yeah. Uh, he yeah. wants his, his foster family to be looked after. And when he reveals himself to the king and to Tiamat of who he truly is, they agree to take his little siblings in and look after them because they're rich. Of course, they can do that. And so Astro's like, okay, I'll go do whatever now. There's no thing that's driving him to I need to succeed as the prince or whatever. There's not that uh, kind of ticking clock, that sense of tension of what to do. And I think that 
in terms of the same thing of uh, tension and character motivation, I think that Horikoshi also learned from that in terms of the secret that the main character has. Personally, I find it – I think that the that the standout part of this series, the thing that really roped me into it and made me really like it was not the first chapter. It was the second one where Astro comes clean to the king when he's thinking like, I've got to keep my secret and stuff. But then he's like, I can't just let this guy believe that not, – not know that his son is dead. Like that would be so wrong to not let him know about this. And fortunately, things work out after he after he does this, and they're like, well, for whatever reason, the org works for you, so you have to act as the prince. Uh, we there's a great scene of, of the king mourning the loss of his son and being like, yeah, I really wanted to believe that my son had changed because he was always a selfish person. The two of them revealed to Astro, yeah, we kind of knew because you've been acting very differently since you got here and it happened to line up for when the orcs started magically working for you all of a sudden. And it's all a great thing that sets up, hey, this is how it's going to be. It's not just going to be Astro keeping his secret. It's these three people working together. However, I think you can do that and still have there be a sense of Astro needs to keep his secret because... Tiamat does say, you can't tell people you're not the real Prince Barrage, but there's never a sense of what'll really happen if people find out about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's no risk to the secret being exposed for Astro. And there's no person that is of importance who doesn't know the secret. Whereas when when Deku goes to uh, to UA... All the other students don't know his secret. Bakugo's like, why does this guy suddenly have powers? And, and Deku can't tell him. And so there are these important uh, people that he's got to keep the secret from. And we know we are given at least a justifiable rival reason for the secret. But more importantly, there are people of importance who don't know about it. Versus because in that second chapter, the only two characters of importance at that time know about it. Then it's like, okay, well, then it's just like as Astro has introduced people, either he never sees them again or they're also an important character, and he tells them the secret, and they were meant to be a main character. So I, th I feel like you can kind of tell that there was a lesson learned there, that there was an opportunity missed out on that could have made for another element of intrigue. And I always think that, you know, the long-running secret that the protagonist has, you got to play it very carefully. But the fact that it wasn't played here at all, I think, ended up being a detriment to it. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree with all that too, yeah. It's definitely a missed opportunity, and especially as we've seen in MHA recently, like the tension, the conflict of that identity being exposed and people reacting it and like how that can escalate in reactions to it, you know, there could have been uh, something like that in Barrage if like Horikoshi had planned ahead to like write circumstances in a way where Astro had to keep a secret uh, at least from the king, like maybe Tiamat could have found out and be like his confidant the same way all my Bakugo are. Or if there were like another character, like a vizier yeah. character or whatever, who would have been like, oh, well, if, you know, the king's bloodline is going to end, then we need to do something about it. And so they have just this built in reason of like, you can't tell anyone because then, you know, the king will lose the throne or whatever, you know, just just yeah. just add something in. Introduce a Jafar like character, you know, maybe. Yeah. Maybe spice things up like that, possibly. 
Just put Jaxwell Jafar in the movie. Right? <laughs> just screw Disney. What are they going to do? Just put him in there. I mean, what are Disney going to do? I mean, you what can is have Disney interpretation gonna do? of Jafar different from uh, the Disney version. I mean, he originates in the original Aladdin Arabian Nights tale. They. No, no, I want no, no. Disney's Jafar in Barrage. No, same, same. I want yeah. Iago in there, too. And at several points, he turns to the camera and says, I'm Gilbert Gottfried. And then he does the Aflac thing. And I don't want Horikoshi to pay a dime in copyrights. I want there to somehow be a feature in both volumes of Barrage in this world where Iago is a character in Barrage where uh, every one of his speech bubbles has a button that you could press so you could hear Gilbert Godfrey speak all his lines <laughs> and nobody oh. else. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, that would revolutionize <laughs> Gilbert Gottfried uh, narration. You could press like a button on the book somehow and it narrates the entire manga for you. It all started in industria. I just print money. <laughs> It's like a scratch and sniff, but a scratch and listen. You know? Yeah, and there's a 50% chance when you play it that it'll just play him trying to do the One Piece theme song instead. <laughs> so, somebody commissioned Gilbert Gottfried on Cameo to read all of Barrage out loud. Oh, man. But I wonder I wonder how he'll pronounce the orc. <laughs> the orc <Uwe>! <laughs> Holy shit. He'll um, mispronounce Barrage's bulge. And he'll <laughs> just say... Brings balls <laughs> like balls of the battle star. <laughs> but no, uh, like I think you identified very well, like kind of some of the weaknesses in the premise of Barrage. And yeah, I mean, also going back into how the world is set up, I yeah, it is a little difficult to latch on to like why we should care as much about like these different invading alien forces and their machinations to acquire the org and then how they are you know like hurting the different territories on this planet like it's also hard to just explain what the circumstances of the planet are like i understand that industria unify the planet under the current king's rule at some point a few de- like 50 years ago in the story or whatever when the, the king was able to wield the power of the org but then we don't really have an understanding of like okay what are all these different countries and like what are all the different alien factions that have invaded and colonized the different countries because we are really focusing kind of just the capital of industria and then kind of a few of the territories in the outskirts of it which have been, you know, attacked by some bandits and stuff. But, like, if this is an entire planet, we are really just focusing on just such a small area of the planet. And, you know, also for a manga that, you know, says this is the... This era that they are in is, like, the the era of, like, the warring planets or whatever. Like, you know, we're just on this one location, this one planet. And potentially, maybe the manga could have gone out and be more of a, you know, space-faring series. But, like... Yeah, I mean, it just felt like there was so much to explore on this planet in of itself that we didn't really get a good sense of, like, what the different territories are, what the different factions are, what the different alien planets that potentially are out there we might need to visit are. So the world building was not quite as fleshed out and was really hard to super latch onto beyond the immediate understanding of, well, there's a capital, uh, there's a city on the outskirts that they visit and liberate and then there's this other city that's like a big trading port city that they go 
and try and rescue but like yeah for a series about intergalactic conflict it certainly does immediately jump on the uh, old shonen adventure standby of let's go wander this you know desert and occasionally encounter people to fight yeah and it feels very small scale in that regard which i think is a is a weakness in terms of like hooking people who might want to see something that is like more dealing with the potential of like having a space frame series and seeing all these different interesting locations of planets because like it's also a weakness that the cities themselves aren't necessarily that interesting of environments like they're not particularly memorable of locations no too. not at all I, I will say we were kind of making fun of Hiromashima earlier but uh, I will say, I think this is one thing that Eden Zero actually did better than um, than Barrage is the fact that, you know, at the beginning of Eden Zero, at least by the end of the first chapter, we're traveling from planet to planet. Like, I, I kind of wish, like, may, maybe, like, because uh, while we were talking, I've been kind of, like, trying to think of, like, ways where Barrage maybe could have saved itself from being canceled. And I think that's something that, like, Maybe Horikoshi could have tried is maybe start hopping from planet to planet sooner because it feels like by the time we get to the end of Barrage that like that's what we're starting to like maybe set up to do if if this series were to go past its ending I think that's probably like the next thing he would have tried to do. I mean, I think that would have been a destination, but I also think kind of the problem with the premise is that it's also limiting in the sense that the immediate goal is just to liberate, you know, Industria from the alien forces that are already on there and have colonized the different territories. So presumably if Barrage had continued on longer in the immediate term, it still would have been adventuring around the planet and going to different locations on the planet to fight off different alien conquerors. And so at some point we would have gone to space, but like who knows when that would be because in terms of like the progress of like how much ground they covered here, it's they just not cover you know, a whole lot. They only went to three cities that are just in a pretty tight area. I would say, like, when you talked about how, like, chapter two is where you found more of the emotional core in the series. I think chapter three is where I kind of noticed the problem with the series. And it's as you guys have been saying here, you know, their first big mission is to go to a town. And this is supposed to be a fun sci-fi battle series. And ultimately, they go and fight a big gla- a big guy with a club. And it just feels like, oh, we really could have done something more visually interesting and narratively interesting in this entire encounter. Cause I feel like this is where you kind of like having kind of something that has this much of like a non flair feeling to it. Like there's nothing that, about this that it was visually all that interesting or narratively all that interesting. This is where I think you can easily lose readers because it's, it's, it's suddenly a moment where cool. The art's great. The actual design of the bad guy is cool, but uh, his story is kind of a lot more boring than I thought it was going to be on first glance when you talked about an intergalactic war and everything. But, but Chris, actually, it's, they, it, they fought. They fought a rock biter. They did, and he he does have he has big strong hands. Um, but it, it's just one of those things where you're like, oh, this really isn't like a sci-fi series. Is this is a medieval fantasy that just happens to have laser weapons in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you do you do get to see, you know, because Porikoshi has that tendency to go for, like, non-human-looking characters. But a lot of times it just kind of seems to come up on, like, you know, just, like, minor background characters. Like, I swear, I swear, I did see, like, just Shoji shows up at one point. I was like, huh, okay. Yeah. Huh. It's... <laughs> 
One of the things that was interesting about going back to read uh, this after, you know, having been reading My Hero Academia for the last seven years is seeing like, oh, yeah, you can see kind of like how he's got like his tendencies of design choices and stuff. Uh, you know, Tico with those goggles. I was like, ah, that's why Froppy wears goggles. Uh, <laughs> uh, Astro himself looks so much like Hiroshima. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tiamat looks a bit like, like, uh, Aizawa. Yeah, no. I mean, in one of the character profile pages in the book, like Horikoshi was mentioning, initially I had envisioned him with like black hair and a mustache and he was going to be black from head to toe. And when I read that, I was like, that's Aizawa. You're just describing Aizawa there. <laughs> I'm thinking about giving him a sleeping bag, too. I think that'd be funny. <laughs> he was he was going to give him powers, magic eyeballs that cut off people's powers. You're like, okay. Uh, and he was just going to be called Aizawa. <laughs> <laughs> That's when we find out an issue from Jump in the Future showed up in his microwave a week before. And he's like, oh, I should be doing this. <laughs> I also just happened to watch Eraserhead uh, uh, recently. I've been thinking about that movie a lot. <laughs> but also just like, that sense of humor that he's got, you can tell that like he's just kind of sort of always had it, uh, especially if you read uh, the end of chapter notes from the volumes um, where <laughs> there's one where he just calls all of his assistants perverts. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're just all their different fetishes. <laughs> yeah, it's like, wow, dude. Um, and it, it was it is just kind of really weird to see like yeah yeah this is this is definitely a series written by the same guy who who ended up you know writing my hero academia and it is interesting to see it as a step before that i do wonder um you know what would have happened if like i so here's the thing we did get a question when you announced this episode of uh what would you think would have happened if like the series had caught on would you prefer like if we had gotten barrage instead of you know my hero academia and stuff and i do think that my hero academia has is better than barrage specifically because of the Mm -hmm. things that it does better that kind of held this one back but also i don't think that really just just based on the timing and the, what's what's in in the cultural zeitgeist, if you look at the timing of stuff, like the superhero series, one released in the 2010s, was probably always going to be more successful than the sci-fi fantasy series. Yeah. Because yeah. of the stuff that was just getting big at the time. And, you know, we saw it happening not – like – one Punch Man was also a really big hit, partially because it was a superhero series. Uh, and I think that, you know, that's something that just was going to catch the general public's attention more than if uh, this series had lasted a little bit longer, gotten a little bit successful. It would have been probably something that would have lasted like a couple of years as opposed to being, you know, one of the big core series of Shonen Jump right now. Yeah, I mean, not just... Because it would fit in the zeitgeist of the MCU and what's popular. Like, My Hero Academia is a story that Porkoshi creatively is more invested in telling. It was always more invested in telling. Like, one of his first one-shots was the prototype of My Hero Academia. He genuinely has a lifelong love of superheroes. And, like, 2008 or something? Yeah, it's just... I think it was just called My Hero. Yeah, it was just My Hero. But yeah, like, no, he's had a, he's had a lifelong love of superheroes, but he held back from 
doing My Hero Academia as serialization from the start because he didn't like expect it would get picked up for serialization. So he, like held off on it. What ultimately pushed Horikoshi to like go for publishing uh, and pursuing My Hero Academia as a serialization was, uh, to be honest, like uh, he's described this in an interview he did a long time ago uh, with Kendo Koyashi, like back in 2015 uh, for Fuji TV, like he, he basically said it was kind of a, a moment where he's like, he had to go for broke. Like he was just feeling like so like kind of burnt out and depressed and didn't really have any other ideas after Omakadoki's even brought didn't succeed that he was like, there's this one story that I really wanted to tell. I want to tell this superhero story. And so I got to go for it. And I think because it comes from a genuine place for Hokoshi in terms of like what he's interested in, uh, what he's passionate about. And also uh, I think we see in the development of just his like ideas and what he wants to put into work and what he wants to, you know, get across in terms of his messages, a development from Omagadoki to Broch to MHA. And that, yeah, I think that's why it connects and resonates so much that first chapter, because I think very much uh, Deku's, story like it's not only is it like kind of simple to understand latch on to this kid you know wants to be a hero he's not sure he can be but he's encouraged by his mentor that he can uh, it reflects horikoshi's own feeling as an artist at a time of him like wanting to make a living as a mangaka wanting to succeed in this but struggling and not really feeling like he can succeed having like this the sense of uh, anxiety and that he won't ever be able to live his dream, but then just getting encouragement to go for it and that giving the courage to push forward. I think that carries through in the first chapter of uh, MHA. So I think, yeah, I feel like MHA succeeds because, yeah, it's just a more personal work for Horikoshi, not just in terms of like what he's interested in drawing creatively, uh, but also just in terms of the emotions he writes into it. And I, I feel we see that emotional development do gestate a little bit in Barrage. Because I do think this exploration of wanting to uh, something to protect, wanting to protect family is a team that we see extrapolated on more in MHA. Uh, I think there are just some other subtle moments. Uh, I think one of the things we noted uh, from the development of like his protagonist, Aohana and um, Omagadoki, uh, to Astro here in Barrage and then... Uh, Deku and MHJ is that Horikoshi is interested in these protagonists who like really want to help people but are not super sure of their own power or what they can do. And I feel like we see a, a better, more nuanced revision of that from Omagadoki all the way to Deku and Barrage. And I think that's interesting as well. There's a very clear uh, connection to between Astro and Deku that is more relevant with where my hero specifically is right now, sort of as of the recording of this, because there's there's so much of a, a narrative in the first portion of Barrage of Tiamat thinking, well, it's great that this kid wants to help everybody, but he's constantly placing himself in danger. He's always doing this for everybody else. And that is the main storyline of Deku's character at this point in my hero is how much he's willing to destroy himself to keep everybody else safe because all he really knows is he has this this power, he has the strength, he has to be the one to do it. And they kind of note that at several points during Barrage, they're like, oh, I have to be the one to take down this opponent because I have the org and, and I need to be the one to put myself in this danger. So I'll take this fight so that you don't have to, which is a weird moment because then they establish like seconds later that, oh, wait, no, they're actually scared of bullets too. So I guess you didn't really need to be the one to take on this big <laughs> fight by yourself. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, definitely. Like, we see a development of him exploring his idea of, like, this self-destructively self-sacrificing protagonist from Astro and Barrage to Deku and MHA. I think, like, he definitely contemplated that idea and refined that further. And, you know, anecdotally and also observably, a lot of Deku's personality is very much informed by Horikoshi's own personality of being kind of like this anxious, worry ward of a person and a little bit of an introvert. I think that Horikoshi, as we kind of, as we see, like, a development of, like, the type of protagonist he ultimately kind of found more comfortable to write was one that was more like himself. When we go from a character like Sheena, who is, like, yeah, just, like, super positive, upbeat protagonist from Omagadoki. And then here we have Astro, who has a little more vulnerability, but still much is that kind of, like, character who has a little more confidence. Like, and then we get Deku, who is who struggles with that confidence to start and then needs that encouragement, but then still is like putting all these burdens on himself because he doesn't want to bother other people. I do think we see more of Horikoshi like express more comfortably like his own mindset in his work and explore that through his characters and explore his his feelings through his characters. There's a comment at the end of the second one in a barrage where like Horikoshi is like you know, giving his afterword. And he's saying, like, what did I just write? It's like a 90s manga where you finally find the author put in their own work. And I read that as, like, Horikoshi, like, kind of grappling with the idea that maybe he was starting to put it more of himself and more of his, like, feelings in in a barrage and trying to explore that way and being a little uncomfortable with that. But I think that him finally, like, as he said in that interview long ago, like, going for broke and just, like, going all in and telling kind of a thing that was very personal uh, for him and MHA, I think that just led him to tell a more compelling and more fully realized story, just in terms of the characters and then the narrative arcs. And yeah, I think that's why, uh, another part of why it resonates so much, yeah. I think that's a valid read, but I do want to put out there that it's also possible that that specific part of the afterword was probably referring to the like bonus comic at the end. That's also true. I- either way, it could be true, but I-, I do, I do think your reading might be maybe the correct one. It's it's interesting to think about, but I guess we don't really know for sure. Yeah, unless Horikoshi like whatever specifically says, like you know, we we don't really know. It's just that from the context of what Horikoshi has said about his mental state about the time of barrage of him being like in a very depressed place, like being a very difficult time for him. Uh, in the interview that I'm mentioning with uh, Kendo Kobayashi, he did a few years ago. Like, he, he mentioned that he really doesn't have, like, a ton of fond memories of working on Barrage because, like, it was just such a difficult time. He's really just trying to push through it and very depressed after it to the point where he was, like, thinking he was giving a manga. And even before that, though, like, his depression was just sitting with a Magadoki Zoo because his, his comment on Magadoki Zoo was, like, he didn't really have any confidence at the time drawing my work. Like, he was always thinking to himself, why am I drawing such a low-quality of drawing of, of manga. So it's like he was really down on his own work and down on himself and uh, down on the fact that his work wasn't succeeding. There's also anecdotally him like not approaching Oda like at the New Year's parties for Shonen Jump authors and telling him that he was uh, he was featured in the Usopp's Art Gallery corner in like Volume 23 way back in the day because he was kind of uh, nervous and like not really confident in like 
mentioning that because his work was like in the back of the magazine. So he didn't like have a lot of self-confidence. And then like at these parties, he would like put himself off in a corner and just self-isolate. And then it's like after MHA became popular that he was finally more comfortable, like putting himself out there and being around people. Like there's a moment in an interview he did with Oda where Oda specifically comments, hey, so it's like after your series got popular, that gave you like more of a push and gave you more confidence. Like Horikoshi kind of reacts to that, like kind of embarrassed or like not really knowing like how to respond to that. So it's really interesting to just think of this in the context of Horikoshi's development as an artist and also maybe working through, you know, his own state of mind in terms of his mental health and then his own ideas and what he and what stories he wanted to tell and that culminate in MHA. Mm-hmm. So that's that's another reason why I find Barrage an interesting work, uh, even if it has all these flaws in terms of the premise not being all there in terms of some of the story beats kind of not gelling or coalescing particularly at the end uh we, you know there's a lot of weird timeline discrepancies in terms of like black's history and involvement in events and all that but it really does feel like a raw work emotionally compared to Magadoki for me uh, in terms of like a lot of different beats in the story uh, and it asks Droth's character. And then I definitely can see how he would go from this work and then take, you know, ideas he was thinking about and was exploring through this and then, you know, expanding on them while going back to his roots in a sense in MHA. So that's something I just found very interesting. No, I totally agree. Um, I, th- I think that was kind of my issue with um, with Barrage just overall. Like, it's, it's so weird. Like, if I were to... Comp- keep comparing the two series um i think i still prefer omagadoki just a little over barrage personally because i think it's just a more interesting more fun comic to read in terms of like the art and just like uh like we mentioned earlier horikoshi's character designs being on full display as opposed to barrage where they're mostly in the background though i I still think they're good i don't want to i don't want to say like they're not because i i at least like his alien designs i just wish they were a little more at the forefront, but uh, what I'm trying to get at is, um, I, I think it is easy to tell that, like, as far as like which series he was probably a bit more passionate about. I and this is just me. I I personally think that it's a little easier to tell that, like, no matter how he was feeling, I think he was still at least like more. I think he enjoyed probably doing Omagadoki Zoo more compared to Barrage, where like personally, I think in terms of like. Uh, the story and the characters and, like, just what kind of manga he's going for. I do feel like Barrage is a little safer. Like, it, it feels like the kind of thing that I think should have probably, or at least probably has had, like, a better chance of success than I think Omagadoki Zoo did, because it feels a little more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it feels like something you would, uh, something more like you would expect from Jump, I feel like, but at the same time, like, I don't know. I also couldn't help but think, like, I really wish that, like, even if the series was still going to get canceled, like, I really wish that the people at Shonen Jump and Shueisha gave Barrage at least until, like, the next serialization round to maybe see where it was going. Because I, I fully believe that, like, Horikoshi, I think, was probably going to open up the world as far as, like, I, I really feel like uh, if he wasn't already planning on it, we could have at least used that opportunity to maybe start planet hopping and to maybe start exploring more interesting environments and maybe like 
start trying to capture the in- more of the interest from readers, I think. But I don't know. That, that's just me. I mean, he had already introduced a space whale, so I don't know where he's going to go <laughs> I mean, from there. They could have ridden the space on, in the space whale. Like, the, yeah, you know, that we see people cool. in the space whale stomach. Maybe you can breed inside there. Maybe that's instead of a spaceship, they just travel through space inside the space whale. The, the space whale is the best part of the series, but that that's mm. just my opinion. <laughs> I think that the overall tone of uh, this manga has been that there are parts of the series that we all like, but that ultimately we probably just feel a bit more down on it now that we've read a lot of manga that have come out since then. Yeah. And have, of course, had mm-hmm. seven years of, you know, the the most successful of Orokoshi Sensei's work to compare it to. Um, but I do want to say that the things that I liked about this series have not aged poorly in the slightest. I think that Horikoshi's art is gorgeous. I think that his way of the way that his designs kind of the shape of them changes during action scenes still draws you in immensely. The, the creative designs that he pulls out are great. I love that, you know, he has this weird idea to, yeah, sure. There's, there's a giant, land whale but not only that but it's it's super polite and well thought and it's the the voice of reason when there is a conflict going on what a weird you know concept to have there it's favorite foods beef stew a, a, a little bit of omakadoki zoo dna in there yeah she kind of reminded me of bubby from flapjack <laughs> I, I could see that actually yeah but more so than that uh because to me you know art is secondary to writing and story is secondary to characters uh, so, of course, despite the fact that I have problems with the story, ultimately, I still think very strongly of the minutiae that happens in the series, the very in-depth, dramatic examinations of big things that happen to individuals, to Astro himself, uh, to the thought of, you know, what has happened between the original Barrage and his father, uh, with Tico and her family. And the, the death scene of her foster father is still very, very impactful. That was yeah. uh, all this time later. And that kind of stuff lets me know. I was like, no, no. I mean, yeah, I feel a little bit differently about the series now than I did back then, but I totally understand why I was so into this because this is very good it's just that the little things that i appreciate the most about manga were not quite presented in the overall package that really kind of draws a bigger audience in to get to enjoy and appreciate those moments i know that there are a lot of people who have very very different and very passionate opinions about so many different My Hero Academia characters. It's very easy to go online and see where people, you know, disagree on the controversial ones like Endeavor, like Bakugo, etc. You know, who's your favorite character? Do you Are you a big Todoroki fan or are you into, you know, one of the more minor characters? Are you like a Mineta Sato fan? Or whatever? Do you, <laughs> what are your thoughts on Mineta as a character? And you know what? No one would get into those conversations if the whole thing had not been presented in a package that was much easier to get into than Barrage ultimately was. And so I feel essentially like he always had it. It was just he needed to find the right way of getting those strengths across to people 
And yeah, as it turns out, that was to go for the thing that he was a passionate about and B was something that everyone else was getting into all at the same time. I was going to say that, like, it feels like out of his three series now, I was going to say it feels like Barrage is, like, the least passionate he is, but, like, I don't know if that's entirely correct. I don't think that comes across in the work, because I feel like we've discussed problems with the premise. I don't think, in terms of the character writing, I think this is super emotionally charged. I think he had incredible care for these characters and their arcs and developing their relationships, and I think that is the strongest part of the manga. I think I really love the mentor-mentee relationship of Tiamat and Astra. I, there's so many good interactions between them of, like, Tiamat, like, trying to advise Astra, like, recognizing, oh, hey, this guy has potential, but he's too self-sacrificing. He needs to, you know, take care of himself more or, like, think of himself more rather than, like, risk himself uh, for other people when moments of clutch happen. And then I also just like moments where... And Tiamat is, like, instructing, teaching Astro. Like, I love, like, when they are, like, fighting dead uh, Rock's forces. Like, during mid-fight, Tiamat is coaching him on how to effectively use the spear. It's just a really cool scene. Uh, I really like everything involving Kiko's character. I thought it was very compelling, her relationship with her foster father. And, yeah, I mean, Nick's point, like, the scenes where they're fighting Tad and he's, like, brutally kicks him. And then it, like... Even though he's, like, bleeding out, like, her dad is, like, clutching at Tad's legs to prevent him from kicking her daughter. And it's like, don't you hurt my daughter. And then the entire, of course, his passing words are, like, saying, like, you know, he just wants her to protect herself, take care of herself, and not, like, get led astray by revenge and stuff. And, you know, it's just really compelling stuff, I think. And I I think it goes in a satisfying place where her own character, where, like, she does ultimately, like, let go of that revenge, but still comes in to help uh, Tiamat and Astro, and then take out Tad, and kind of avenge her dad in that way, even though she doesn't, like, commit to murder or whatnot. I I like that. There's just so many good character moments and character arcs in these volumes that I really appreciate and I I feel like we get more development out of these characters than we got in the manga Doki personally and I think this is a good reflection of Horikoshi's development as a writer and really figuring out how to craft these really compelling characters by like again putting more of his kind of of his own personal feelings into their arcs and into their stories and I then yeah, but to go back to Nick's point, I, I do think that the big weakness of the series was that the premise was just hard to latch onto. And I think Horikoshi just found that good medium to get people into with MHA in terms of something that's very easy to kind of understand and grasp and connect with, as opposed to Broad, which yeah, is a mismatch of like different ideas that are not necessarily satisfying to see melded together if you want something that's more of a straight fantasy or want something that's more of a hard sci-fi and stuff like that it's just not it just doesn't hit those points for people uh, in terms of what they want to see out of a premise like this as immediately and i think that's where it definitely fell short but in terms of character writing all the beats really hit for me like so many of the emotional moments and in terms of action beats i think it's a really good showcase because so many of the scenes like the defeat of dead rock uh, even the final blow delivered towards black 
And of course, the fight with Tad has a lot of cool and intense moments. Those like, were some of my favorite parts in terms of the art, for sure. Yeah, I think it, this is definitely a good showcase of his evolution as an action artist, too, from um, from Amakadoki, which does have a lot of fun fight scenes. But like, there was some real good intensity and just really tangible a sense of danger and stakes here that I really appreciated. I agree. Um I, I do want to put this on record because, like, I, I, I do agree overall that, like, the emotional beats in Barrage are way better than um, in Omagadoki Zoo. That's that's no question. As much as I love Omagadoki, I even I have to admit that. But, and, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm going to sound joking, but, like, I also don't want to, like, d- dismiss the character writing when I say this because I do, I do think it's good. And I think it was probably, like, the best part of the series. But I will say that, like, I I, th- I thought the same thing when when I was originally reading this week to week that um, the 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 setup for the arc that takes place in like Tico's village, everything from them coming to a village invaded by outsiders that just happen to be in cahoots with the military service. They also turn a blind eye, and along with Tico being this orphan girl who basically was adopted by these people who one of them eventually dies. It reminded me of Arlong Park, basically. But but when I when I say that, like, I know that's going to sound dismissive, and I don't want it to sound dismissive, but, like, it was really hard for me to not keep thinking of Arlong Park, but that was just me. No, I could definitely see that. I, I, I guess in that way, though, I would much rather most battle manga trying to start off to our long park at the beginning that, that's like, fair, I, yeah. I mean, like, honestly i kind of wish one piece had done better our long park a little bit earlier than they did <laughs> don't when you get right down to it yeah, it took us what a year and a half to get there <laughs> yeah too long it's too long <laughs> i ain't got one of my little live forever now come on I, th- there were still good moments beforehand but i like halfway agree no i can see the similarities but i think in the context like it's it's not exact beat for beat, so it doesn't bother me as much. And also, I appreciate Barrage gets into more of the adventure very quickly, even if, like, again, the sense of what's driving Astro is not as strong or compelling as it could be. I think I appreciate that we are get we get to that point of, like, visiting the different cities, and we, we get to interact with characters who are in these dark circumstances that Astro can help and inspire, and that we learn more of their stories, and they're compelling characters in their own right, like Nina and Tico. I think that it was good that we got stuff like that early on, and I think that, yeah, that carries through in MHA, where I, it has a little more setup, but I think that we ha- we also get very compelling relationships between characters, and senses of urgency early on in MHA 2 because the whole villain invasion happens pretty quickly in that in MHA 2 so yeah yeah I'm glad it happened as early as it did because I think if the first chapter didn't already hook me which it did but like I, I think the USJ arc was the first time I thought like okay I'm completely hooked now I'm never going to stop reading this thing you know mm. uh, I guess I'm trying I don't know if there was anything else we wanted to talk about before this but do we want to talk about the big twist, or is there anything we want to talk about beforehand, or? Uh, not that I can think of. Well, here, so I, I'm, and for those of you listening, uh, time codes in the description, please skip ahead if you don't want this spoiled at the very least. Um, giving you a second to leave. Okay, there we go. Um, so, okay, what do we think specifically about the whole twist with Astro being Barrage? 
Because honestly, like when I when I was rereading this, I honestly forgot that this was a thing, and and I think I alluded to it earlier. But like th- this this twist is so like I, I don't know what to call it, but it, it's so confusing that like even Tiamat just kind of gives up at one point. Like I Astro Barrage, like, whoever you are, I don't care. Like <laughs> I, I don't I don't know how how I feel about this. Well, so uh, there's kind of like three ways that manga have to end when they're kind of <laughs> ended early. Okay. One way is you just turn whatever current story you were doing like into the end yeah. and you just then give like an epilogue afterwards and like here are all the adventures we were going to do. Yeah. One way is you just do nonsense. You just you go off the wall. You you uh, stealth symphony and you're just like what <laughs> like we're going to blow up everything whatever. <laughs> But another way is you have to speed everything forward and you make like to get to I, we presume Black would have been at least maybe not the final antagonist of the whole story, but a, a very major one. And with that, we have to bring all of the plot points together that are kind of significant for what this character is saying, while also giving a little bit of a tease to like this stuff that was an idea that is certainly not going to be relevant in the next series that Orokoshi is going to be doing. So it's like, hey, uh, before we fight and end this this vicious fight, I need to explain to you, you're not actually who you thought you were. You're, in fact, the real son, which is kind of a weird twist because you don't really ever get much of a sense of, like, an imposter syndrome from Astro enough to, like, really justify the twist of, like, no, you actually were the chosen one or whatever. Um and and then drop all these little details about how Black became so twisted. And then, as we mentioned earlier, a little nugget tease to the idea of like, well, actually, the re- the the quote unquote real Prince Barrage could still be out there somewhere. We never found a body. <laughs> like just all these stuff. Like we wanted to kind of get to all these things, and some of them are pretty important for the conflict between Black and Astro. But uh, you know. I, I had a lot of ideas. I wanted to do this. I'm sorry. I put them out there, I guess. Mm-hmm. I forget if this was on mic or not, but uh, I said it earlier that, like, Horikoshi is trying to do with Black what Togashi did with Sensui in particular, but on, like, 300 times speed fast forward. Yeah, a whole disillusionment with people and losing faith in the good in people. So instead deciding he'll destroy them and instead yeah i mean like because we saw so little the actual intergalactic conflict a lot of that falls flat because you're like well i guess he got sick of war which i have no experience with because that it didn't really feature in the series all that much no Um, yeah yeah it was definitely like i don't know if it was ever if it was always going to be the case that black was going to have been responsible for the original but fake barrage um probably not but it was like it was an okay you know excuse like uh this this super special power yeah he just made a clone of it you know whatever it's it's really powerful just so whatever but i mean considering that certain characters like we mentioned before like the assassin like just never brought up again it was probably a matter of well i've got to get this twist that i had planned just done now Otherwise, you know, it's just going to just end on the note of like, and then they beat the guy and they had many more adventures and you might as well go big or go home, you know, throw the really big thing, dramatic twist into this final storyline when you got the chance to do it. And everything that happened was actually them filming a movie or whatever. Yeah, that's also a Yu Yu Hakusho idea. That is also something Kakashi wanted to do at the end of Yu Hakusho is to reveal that oh, yeah, yeah, entire yeah. manga was just a TV show or a movie and that the characters were actors. And then it was going to be this whole 
kind of meta thing for the epilogue that he he sported a little bit in some bonus chapters or Dujinshi, but didn't put in the actual series. So that's that's kind of a fun Yuyaku. Thank connection. goodness. I, I I can't imagine. There's so few things more fu- infuriating than the twist of like, well, it was it, it was all a dream, or it all took place <laughs> in a snow globe, or something like that. Mm. But yeah, like obviously because the series had to be rush to a finish the timeline presented and this information expositive is very dense and convoluted in a way that like doesn't super land um but i think that if horikoji had been given more time to like properly pace these ideas and revelations and, and with black in particular explore his character more it could have worked i mean the timeline with black's character of like 17 years ago, he was working for the Industrial Army. And then 15 years ago, when Barrage was born, he did all this thing of, like, switching him with... He created someone out of Dark Energy, which is... The implications of what you can do with Dark Energy, I'm sure, is something we're going to explore more. Because if you can create... Well, he's constantly generating those limbs, so why not a whole person? (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I I will say that Black's use of his dark energy power to create lens uh is a very cool power represented visually and uh also i think it leads to some tense moments like when he bites tiamat's arm and it looks like he's like severed it i thought that was a good intense mm. moment that was pretty good yeah but yeah like then then it's like so he had a 10-year period where he's like exploring the world and he got jaded with humanity but then two years ago is when he encountered Astro and became a foster figure, fodder figure for him for a time. But then also two years ago was when he invaded Marcel and conquered the city. And then his appearance when we flash back to him two years ago, he had didn't have the black eyes or big horns yet. And then so again the timeline is very confusing and then in the character page for him he Korgoji is his age is 36 but 17 years ago he was 30 so uh, is that just a typo his dark energy allows him to never age or at least age slower maybe that's that's my headcanon yeah maybe so yeah I I think Korokoji was losing some of the details of what he had in mind or was plotting out and that does come across and how that is delivered so yeah I think that I think that the idea of Barrage actually being the biological son of the king as a twist while not necessary could have been used for interesting drama yeah if given more time to explore uh, but of course because it comes at the end it really is not much time to dwell on it I do like the moment of Barrage like preventing Tiamat to like tell the truth to the king because he recognizes that even if the Barrage of Dark Energy was not you know his real biological son like to the king he was he was the son that he raised and he especially I guess with so how soon his death was he doesn't want to reveal that to the king and make him even more distraught and I think I, I at some point you know he should have he should tell the truth down the line but that again going to the point of like keeping a secret from someone as a source of drama that could have been an interesting thing if kept on to and in the moment uh, it does come across as sweet that astro was being mindful of the king's feelings there yeah yeah i i also i also like that moment because you know it's that whole thing where it's like um well blood doesn't matter because 
the 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 fake barrage what you know he still saw him as his son and they still they still had a relationship and he still cherished him as his son and Astro doesn't want to like take that away from him and I I I did like that bit of the ending personally that was that was really nice and returning to Black well we do draw a comparison to him as like a character akin to Sensui in Yu Yu show or other similar characters who you know, are disillusioned with humanity and aim to destroy it. I do feel that aspects of Black's character, particularly in his, like, closing monologue after Astro defeats him, where he's talking about, you know, he saw everything wrong in the world as the world's fault, as the fault of other people, and then being, like, compromised and whatnot. And then he, by blaming others, was trying to convince himself that he was in the right, he couldn't allow crooked behavior. Knowing about Horikoshi's kind of social anxiety and his feelings of alienation at the time of writing Barrage from other people, I do kind of get the sense that perhaps through the character of Black, he was working through some of those feelings of how he was like viewing other people or interacting with other people at the time. And that is an interesting idea to me. And obviously, unless Horgoshi comes right out and say, oh, this is sort of what I was doing with this. Like, this is just like an interpretation. But knowing the context of Horgoshi's like mental state at the time, and then also like how, you know, he was isolating himself at the time. Like, I, that did kind of strike me as, as something that feels like it was coming from a real authentic place. So even though it was kind of like a rushed, oh, maybe I was wrong all along kind of defeat confession thing. I feel like it was coming from a, a real place uh, in terms of where of why Horikoshi was writing the way that he was. That makes me appreciate it. Is there is there anything else that we kind of like any other straight thoughts that we have or anything else we want to bring up? Uh, maybe before we uh, start wrapping up here soon with our final thoughts and then uh, Twitter questions, comments. Do you think the orc would have just kept changing form? Over time, had this series run longer? Oh, yeah. So. Probably, I, yeah. It would become different weapons, kind of like Babo and Mare and other similar type of weapons like that that have, like, malleable transformations and uses. It was very interesting to me seeing it where I was like, oh, so this was a little bit of the Black Whip before the Black Whip came about. Yeah, with yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Giant yeah. Tendrils, <laughs> or I guess Shigaraki also did that recently, or all for one, rather used basically like the giant lines of death that you know twisted turn or whatever yeah no that's very true like the black lightning of the ore is very much a precursor to the black whip in terms of how it's depicted visually well, and, and speaking of shigaraki you know having the villain with all the hand motifs going on so the big giant dark hand that looks like it could just come out of kuragiri or whatever like <laughs> <laughs> um i have a feeling and this is just i guess i don't know this for sure but like I have a feeling that, like, Horikoshi got tired of drawing the org as, like, a spear weapon and maybe just went for something simpler like a sword. Because it really feels like the org can just turn into a sword now just because. Like, they, 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 they don't really, like, they kind of acknowledge it and they just kind of drop it. Like, oh, I guess it could turn into a sword now. Huh. That's cool, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense that it was triggered by a moment of, like, Astro's emotional desperation and desire to save Tico. And it's, it's set up that the org is powered or reacts to the emotions of the wielder. That's and fair, yeah. their desire to And their desire to protect people and to fend off enemies. So I think the org being able to 
change shape and grow in power is directly linked to Astro's own emotional growth and his own feelings. And that would have been something that would have been, I think, interesting to explore if the series had continued. So it worked for me in the moment. Uh, of course, it's, you know, it is very much the shonen power-up kind of thing of like, oh, new power that saves the day, like in a moment of desperation. I think uh, it worked for what it needed to do. And I do appreciate that the sword form still can apply the principles that Tiamat taught Oster in terms of how to use a spear-like weapon because it can like extend and grow in size. That's one of my favorite two-page spreads is like Aster just like creating like a super big sword out of the org and just hitting a bunch of aliens all at once with it and send them in flying. And then later he's like tries to like cut open the gates with the sword by making girl longer. So I I think that could have been fun to play with visually. I I like the way that's set up at first too because you have one of those alien guys being like, oh man, yeah, I'm so strong or whatever, and then and then he just <laughs> immediately gets blasted by the sword. Which I wasn't expecting that to have like a full two page spread, but I think it does make that moment uh, feel a little bigger and even like maybe even a little more comedic. I think. Hmm. I guess my question specifically would be um, because personally, you know, I've made it clear that like conceptually and as far as like interesting ideas goes and like the potential that Horikoshi has in one series compared to another, I would have liked to see more of a Magadoki Zoo personally, but I also, like I said, I, I also agree that like in terms of an emotional core, Barrage does have a better grasp of that kind of thing. And I was... You know, for for as little time as we spent with the characters, I was definitely more attached to them than I was any character in Omakidoki Zoo, I will admit. Uh, so would you would you guys recommend this to would you guys recommend this manga to someone who wasn't already a fan of Horikoshi? Because personally, I think I think personally, I would say if you're a fan of Horikoshi's works and you haven't read this yet, I think it's worth checking out. Though, on its own, I don't know, I don't know how many people would be super into it, especially since, like, it gets cancelled, like, so quickly, but, I don't know, that's just me. I'm interested in what you guys think. I think I'd have to consider for what end am I recommending it to people on? Like, if this was somebody, like, if I'm talking to, like, a, you know, Joe somebody who's, like, just getting into manga, I don't think I would bother bringing up a series that ends up being cancelled, but if I'm talking to somebody who reads a lot of jump manga maybe just popped on recently and they're curious about some older stuff i definitely would throw out barrage it's something that you if you have a jump subscription you can access it for free in the vault check it all out there uh it's a relatively fun series you can mention hey this is the work of horikoshi who did my hero academia if it's somebody who really doesn't know that kind of information or anything like that i'd absolutely feel like it'd be something to throw out there as an interesting little tidbit into show like here's what they were beforehand if they aren't familiar with it be like yeah this is an opportunity to explore manga that end up getting canceled kind of early and and what sort of happens with the narrative when it happens and i mean just in general if somebody's a big fan of battle shonen manga i'd be like yeah you need something to do in the afternoon you should read barrage it's two volumes it's on the shonen jump vault go check it out Mm -hmm. i think that uh i mean Obviously, yes, your point about, oh, if someone's already a fan of Horikoshi's work, it's a great thing to just recommend. It's like, hey, there was this really short-lived thing uh, that uh, he did before My Hero Academia. I don't know if you've checked it out. Um, But uh, in terms of, like, just check it out on its own merits, if My Hero Academia had never happened, I would definitely be saying, like, oh, there was this great series that happened in, like, 2012. It ended way too soon. This great (laughs) art, these great characters and stuff. (laughs) 
But because My Hero Academia did happen, it's kind of like, okay, justice has been done. Horikoshi has got the platform to show what a talented creator he is. So Nick's not kidding about that. I went out to dinner with him once, and after the waiter took our order, he recommended Last Sayuki to him. (laughs) Just on a whim, he was just like, you gotta check this out. It didn't get its fair due. Yeah, that that definitely that definitely happened. Yes, <laughs> I mean to be to be fair, uh, I would. I mean, if 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 you if you asked me, Last Sayuki is one that I would recommend over this one because I think on its own it is still pretty good. But that's well, just well. But to the point, I mean, like if the uh, oh gosh, I forget his name, but if the creator of the Last Sayuki, you know, their next manga becomes a big hit, then I'll be like, okay, I don't I don't necessarily need to. I, that kind of takes away one of the reasons I would recommend that's fair. Uh, yeah, yeah. the series to someone <laughs> is because like, well, yeah, but here's the thing that doesn't have the really early dissatisfying ending to it. Um, the only other reason I feel like I could recommend this to someone, I wouldn't do it to get someone new into manga, but if they were already into manga and they were like, oh, so here's this My Hero Academia thing. I don't know if I should read it because it's hundreds of chapters long. I don't know if I want to invest into that. Then maybe I would say, well, you could check out this really short series that the author did called Barrage, and maybe if you like that, you'll want more. Uh, and then, so maybe it could be a jumping off point in that way, but they would already have to be into Shonen Mog for me to potentially make that recommendation. In general, the unsatisfying ending is a very difficult thing, and it's kind of got to be something that you've got to tell people about going in. It's like, by the way... <laughs> It just kind of the last three chapters just kind of like shit, shit, shit. I've got to end it and and just it's done. This so. got canceled early. Can you tell? <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. It's hard to divert. It's higher to dive the divorce barrage from the context of my academia, and we you know certainly didn't do that in this podcast. Like we talked about it in the context of my academia and hey Horikoshi's other works. And there is a lot that's interesting about it on its own, but the shadow of MHA's success and just how much more improved and how much more of a showcase it is of Horikoshi's talents definitely weakens uh, the ability to recommend Barrage as like a standalone like piece of fiction for people to check out, you know, just if they want to check out just a science fantasy manga to read. I, I agree with Nick's point that if you like, People were interested in reading Horikoshi's stuff, but like not wanting to commit to MHA and uh, for some reason maybe not wanting to read the first volume just to see if they like it, but they would be able, want to take a chance to barrage to see if they gel at his writing. I think that could be an interesting occasion to recommend it to people. But yeah, it is hard to recommend this just to the average like manga fan if they're not interested in in these types of settings, if they're not interested in, or if they're not already a fan or interested in shown in like my academia. And so, yeah, it's, it's a hard place uh, in terms of like who to recommend it to outside of people who are just interested in discussing and checking out like these short lived Shonen Jump series that never made it like we are. And yeah, so it's, I, I don't know who necessarily I would recommend it to besides people who are already fans of my academia or are already interested in these kind of short-lived series because they are short-lived and they want to see and check out what they're like. Mm-hmm. I would say that in comparison to other short-lived science fantasy manga, like I, I would recommend Barrage over Samurai 8, but Fair. that's yeah. just over a personal feeling. I mean, I think some people prefer Samurai 8, but you know, I feel 
uh, in general, in terms of just my feelings on the series, like I enjoyed revisiting it, warts and flaws and all, and you know, I do think there's a lot to appreciate on its own about its characters. I do think the characters are swing. I find them very compelling. I think a lot of the action is really great and exciting. And it's a shame that the series had to rush the ending, but I do find a lot of the beats towards the end still really nice, even though it does end in a kind of journey continues kind of way rather than something super concrete and really feeling final uh, in terms of a note to leave off on, which is a little uh, sad and disappointing. But in terms of what I come looking for in terms of manga, in terms of, you know, wanting like really compelling character arcs wanting to see like authors like have a have a clear set of ideas or themes or or things that they're interested in exploring through their work and trying to 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 explore how they think of these things and then what message they want to get across in their stories i think barrage delivered more on that for me than omagadoki did and i think that what you prefer is going to Depend on, I guess, just your preferences. Because I do think Amagadoke is a stronger showcase of Horikoshi's character designs. It's a much lighter, uh, more a fun series in the sense that it, it's not as serious in terms of a lot of the stakes that are in Barrage and stuff. Uh, but I just, my problem with it, why I couldn't like super latch onto it was that I didn't super connect to the characters i didn't get a good grasp of what horgoshi was trying to put into his work it was very much like horgoshi was like just drawing a lot of things he liked but i didn't really get a sense that there was a a reason like a super strong emotional core that justified everything and i got more of a sense of that in barrage and especially i mean knowing the context around barrage and knowing like the development of Horikoshi's ideas from Makadoki 2 MHA, that also just makes Mirage an, an interesting work to look back and reflect on and revisit in that respect for me. So I I appreciated revisiting Barrage and yeah, but it is hard to recommend it on its own, completely diverse or separate from the context of MHA and and thinking of it in contrast and in and as part of the stepping st- the steps and as a stepping stone towards the creation of MHA. I mean, to answer and go back to the Zodiac, uh, Zodi Lady's question that we, we also addressed earlier, which is why I just want to touch back on it. I think that Barrage needed the film the way it did for us to get MHA. And I think that for Horikoshi, and then I think for us as fans, I think that ended up being for the better because it allowed Horikoshi to create the work that he was really passionate about. And I think MHA has just given so many people just so much joy as a piece of pop culture that it's really hard for me to think of Barrage resonating on that level and to that extent. And we're, we have just a strong, uh, not just Patrick fan community, but it's just such a broadly enjoyed work that people really love and has really made waves just internationally. So. I am glad to be in the world where Horikoshi is doing the work he's more passionate about and that being reflected in having created a series that is something that is like a cornerstone of pop culture that people can, you know, discuss and relate to, form friendships around, uh, get excited about, and has really inspired a lot of people as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I think I think you said it best. Um, 
I mean, you know, like, like we said, for, for those who want to read Barrage, it is available in the Show to Jump vault. Or if you just want to buy the digital volumes, you know, they're like seven bucks each, I think. It's 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 pretty cheap. You're not going to waste too much money on them. If you want at least a, sh- a shorter, you know, Shonen Jump manga just to kind of like pass the time, I think it's good for that. Um, also, I think this is the one canceled series that uh, Viz ever brought out that ended up getting physical releases, too. So that's also so that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, and I'm I'm pretty sure those are still in print, at least the last time I checked anyway. Yeah, I mean, written by Kuhei Horikoshi. We have a real <laughs> Bart Bork situation going on. <laughs> now Horikoshi is credited on these covers oh, with man. an extra U in there. But yeah, it's an interesting product of its time, these volumes, because they cite it as a Shonen Jump Alpha series with the logo of Shonen Jump Alpha on the back of the volumes with the copy text saying fresh from SJ Alpha. So I wonder if reprints have adapted or tweaked that text to to reflect that Shonen Jump Alpha uh, doesn't exist in that form anymore. I wonder how many reprints this has gotten. That's something I'd be interested in. Yeah, but uh, it's interesting. So, yeah, it's out there. It's still available. If you want to check it out, go check it out. But, uh, yeah, I guess just to kind of finish off our conversation, I, I do kind of want to read the rest of the replies we got on our uh, on our initial tweet over at manga underscore Mavericks. Uh, you should be following us. Um, we already read the Zodi ladies a comment earlier. So I'm just going to read first from quad underscore rat who says, oh man, I read this at the time when it was still published. Man, I wish it would get continued. I was sad when they canceled it. And hey, look, I get that feeling. We all we all have that one series that got canceled where it's just like, man, I wish we got more of this. And mm-hmm. my, mine is Omagadoki Zoo. Um, at least that's like the first one I, I could think of anyway. Neolation. <laughs> yeah, I wish Neolation lasted longer. I was actually pretty interested in like where that one was going to go. Man, I can't wait to cover that on the show eventually. Oh man, I wish, I wish, I wish the Promised Neverland had continued after its first year. <laughs> it was so good. I don't know what happened to it. It oh, just man. vanished. Just think of all the potential. I would have loved to see where it started gone after Gracefield. Yeah, they just they got out of they got out of the mansion. What happens after that? We never <laughs> so found out. So much potential in the world. Like they, they clearly were going to go to a very satisfying place Damn. in terms of exploring these characters, uh, surviving this world of demons, and exploring all the implications. I've never felt so much shade on on the podcast before and i i kind of <laughs> i'm kind of about it we need to cover promised everland at some point it's coming we just don't know when well yeah i mean if you love those obscure series that got canceled really early there you go yeah yeah imagine we live uh, in a world where either red Strider or love rush managed to make it over the promised everland <laughs> it's weird that Asylum, the movie studio who makes parody movies off of big name movies and just changes one of the words, was actually allowed to make season two of The Promised Neverland. <laughs> it seems like such a weird move. Oh my god, not inaccurate at all. <laughs> it oh, that man. oh well. Uh, just to read our next comment from at Darren Vogtart. They say, uh, I need to look back through these. There was a lot of promise and really fun character designs. I would have loved to see it go on a bit longer. So, hey, look, I, I feel you. What was I going to say? Uh, and I guess I can read our next, our, our last question from uh, at Corito Prime, who asks, how do you pronounce Popper in English? 
paw as in a cat's paw and purr as in a cat's purr. That's how I like to describe it. Well, I, I was going to say, are, are there other ways to pronounce that word? Because I honestly don't know. Paw Pierre. <laughs> like you really just play into it like you're, you're one of those people who's like, I got to make a Tarjay run. <laughs> why would you Why would you pronounce it any differently? Did, or does... Corito just not know how to pronounce because it is a word you typically don't see outside of the title of the Prince and the Pauper. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't think Corito natively speaks English. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. That would, that, that, that would make it sense. Is an, yeah. It is an unusual word to see uh, if you're not familiar with yeah, it. Yeah, you, rarely you can tell is. by his uh, unusual taste in manga. Right. That <laughs> definitely doesn't. Right. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> When you said that, I was like, is he, is this like supposed to be like a philosophical question or is it, no, no, okay, okay. It's a language barrier. All right. I get you. I get you. But, um, yeah, I guess, um, I guess that's, I guess that's about it for our discussion, huh? Yeah. I mean, I think we got a really good discussion out of Barrage. It was really fun to revisit it and especially to chat about it with you guys. Thank you so much for coming on, Kristen. It was an awesome time. Thank you for having us. Yeah. It was interesting to revisit this series. Mm-hmm. And I guess until hopefully, you know, whenever we can have you guys back on in the future, um, you know, just let our good listeners know where they can find you. Well, you can listen to us each Wednesday evening. We record our show Weekly Manga Recap on twitch.tv slash Rolotee. That's about 7.30 Eastern time that we start recording it. Although you can also follow us on Twitter at Rolotee and at Nick F Time. That's R-O-L-L-O-T and N-I-K-F-T-I-M-E. And you can also uh, follow at WMR Podcast, and we will let you know exactly when we go live. Yeah, we also have a Discord you can check out as well. Uh, you can find links to it on any episode of Weekly Manga Recap, or at least the recent ones. I don't know if it's like retroactively gone back, but any new episode of Weekly Manga Recap on YouTube, you can find uh, all the stuff there. We're on iTunes, Spotify, every place like that. And there's also a Patreon, patreon.com slash weekly manga recap. Yeah, I'm trying to fi- I'm trying to uh, distinguish where exactly I should do the cutoff for just the entire ending spiel because they, I could keep going. But, but. <laughs> you got to thank Milo Jack Stillitz yeah, and uh, Steve make this podcast happen too. <laughs> Wensley Dell Chatter. <laughs> you know what? I'm just going to thank my mom because, uh, you know. <laughs> Aw, she deserves it. She does. I mean... <laughs> Oh, man. But um, no, seriously, thank you guys for coming on. This was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I guess, Lum, this is about the time where we uh, end our discussion and go into community shoutouts, huh? Yeah, let's hop inside the belly of our space whale friend and ride away home to the end of the podcast. All right. Uh, once again, big thanks to Chris and Nick uh, for coming on the show. Uh, we really loved having them on to talk about Barrage. And go listen to Weekly Manga Recap. They're a good show. And yeah, it was a lot of fun having this discussion. And uh, you know what? Surprise, surprise. We're not even done talking about Barrage yet. Um, 
we didn't mention it at the top of the show, or I don't think we even mentioned it during the discussion, but um, you might have noticed a surprising lack of Maxi on, on a Jump Stop episode of the podcast. Uh, and that was because we basically couldn't get our schedules to kind of sync up at all, unfortunately. Um, so as a compromise, we basically are going to have Maxi on their own episode of the podcast to talk about Barrage, but not just that. We're also going to be talking about Kohei Orikoshi's original My Hero One-Shot from 2008. And we're also going to be talking about that, uh, probably also in relation to like the first chapter of the actual My Hero Academia manga and kind of how we feel about both of those. And yeah, uh, you can find all this and more once again at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, that'll basically be our next bonus podcast that we, that we will be uploading at the end of this month. Uh, so if you're like us and you missed Maxi and really wish they were on to talk about Barrage and to, to p- possibly roast it for the entire time, uh, you can listen to that uh, when it's up over at patreon.com slash manga mavericks at the $5 tier. Uh, we haven't recorded it just yet, but I'm I'm really excited to uh, to get Maxi's thoughts on Barrage as uh, they've been kind of uh, hinting at here and there on the last couple of podcasts recently. So <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited to be having that discussion here soon. Um, but yeah, I guess now we can go into community shout outs. And uh, I actually want to start off this time and just kind of talk about uh, a little Kickstarter that my friend Taylor is running right now that uh, by the time this episode of the podcast is out, uh, you should have about like like 20 days or less, like about a like a week and a half ish to be able to back if you're interested. Again, my friend Taylor, who, um, in case you didn't know, is also a, like a really great artist. I had her commission to uh, to do the album art for Another Day, Another Adventure. If you ever listened to that show and thought, oh, man, I th- that Goku looks really cute or whatever. That art's really cool. Like, uh, well, guess what? Uh, that was my friend Taylor's doing. Uh, she's a great artist. And I'm, I'm not just saying this because I'm her friend and I've known her for a really long time. Like, I legitimately really think her stuff is really cool. And uh, I mean, first off, if you ever get the chance to look at her art and maybe look at her uh, profile on Twitter at Taysamey and you like it, maybe you should commission her for something. But uh, yeah, I just want to talk about real quick, just kind of plug her Kickstarter uh, because she basically recently drew up some uh, designs for some really cute characters. One of them being uh, Ichigo, the strawberry ice cream cat. And uh, she's basically started a Kickstarter to basically try to fund her way into making an actual plush out of this character. And, you know, if, if you look if you look at the Kickstarter page and kind of uh, just kind of look at the samples she has, like, you know, I, I personally think her designs are really cute and I would love to own a plush of this thing. Uh, and yeah, she's basically uh, trying to uh, make her goal into making this plush and maybe even some more as some stretch goals if she makes, you know, even more money. But yeah, basically, you can look up info about all this and everything else she uh, wants to achieve with this Kickstarter in particular on her Kickstarter page, uh, which we will be linking in the show notes. Uh, again, I I really love Taylor's stuff and I would really love to help her in any way I can to try to help her fund this project as much as I can. And, and, and hopefully I will have my own little ice cream cat. I would I would love to own this. It's really cute. Um, and so yeah, please please go look at that and uh, maybe back that if you're if you're interested. Um, but Lum, I know you have a bunch of other uh, things you want to shout out for the segment as well. Indeed. And on the subject of Kickstarters, I also want to shout out Jumptails' Kickstarter. They're a homegrown Shonen Jump inspired manga magazine with. A collection of like independent comic creators who are teaming up together to 
print a monthly magazine that'll be about 60 pages each, and they've launched a Kickstarter to fund the first quarter of their run, the first four months. And that will also include publishing a collected 200-page print edition of their comics, which will be published in, you know, book form and delivered and sold and stuff like that. And I've been following their Twitter and their property for a while, and they have a lot of cool creators and cool series that they're debuting with from really great artists that I've been following for a long time, like Darren Lott. And I'm really excited for his series, Battle Road, which is about musicians who fight with magical instruments and travels through a road to the most popular and dangerous battle venues, music venues, and they're like searching for, you know, success and fame and the perfect band. I'm really excited for the chess manga, Check and Mate by Sam Owen and Mark Richard. Like that... I, you know, played chess a lot uh, competitively when I was in high school. So, like, a shonen sports song about chess is something I'm super cool. There's a cool, like, game slash monster type one called Monster World, which is kind of, you know, transport to another world thing where, you know, big massive fantasy world with lots of monsters and that the kids team up but it's actually kind of like digimon that's really cool that's going from mark's jc as the artist victor santiago for story and then they have a fun lawyer manga pancake jackson attorney at war which is like lawyers that kind of fight like and it has a cool queer protagonist too which i really like so yeah, I'm really excited for these, and they also have, like, one-shots coming up that look super cool and interesting. So, yeah, I I think this is a really cool project to see a lot of these artists inspired by manga come together to create their own int- manga anthology magazine, and they are going to be printed in monthly as well and collecting it in book form. I, like, think the mock-ups look good. I think all the previews of the series look really, really great. I'm excited for it. So, yeah, definitely support their Kickstarter. They should still have about three weeks left at the time this episode goes up, so plenty of time to close some support their way and help them meet their $17,000 goal, which I think is very reasonable. So yeah, please, if you're interested in these titles, if you want to support some independent comic artists, definitely throw some support this uh, Kickstarter's way, because I've really been excited for this project and these new comics, and I would love, love to see this get off the ground. Now, I also, of course, want to recommend some shoutouts related to Barrage. And, of course, just like with Amogadoki, I will recommend the Shonen Flop episode on Barrage for, you know, a very critical but also funny discussion on the series. You know, not fans, but, you know, they brought on a guest who wasn't familiar with manga much, but really read Western comics to kind of see if they could see some of that influence, even in Barrage, that, of course, Horikoshi would show off in MHA. And they did a good job, like, examining examining the premise, looking at things they liked, and also, like, you know, things that uh, didn't work out as well, which we also discussed, and it's a good fun discussion, good compliment to this episode, and and also, I think it'd be fun uh, if you guys could check and revisit Nick's old Read Right to Left 
video on Barrage that he made like just a couple weeks out when the series was first running. I revisited it recently. I thought it was really lovely uh, little video. And I think it explored a lot of the early promising strengths of Barrage as a series in terms of its premise, in terms of Astro as a character. So I think that is a fun little time capsule, a fun little blast from the past to go back to and revisit. Similarly, I also think it'd be fun if you guys would revisit Maxie's old friendship after Richter and Barrage. Infamously, of course, you know, we just discussed Maxie really doesn't like Barrage. <laughs> and while I, you know, we'll talk with Maxie about some of his criticisms, there are some I don't quite see eye to eye on, but I do think that he makes some fair points that we even brought up in our podcast in terms of the world building and stuff. So I think it's a very fun podcast. So definitely check that out. It's definitely one of the most memorable, one of my favorite episodes of Fresh of Extra Victory. <laughs> one that really left a direction because Maxie was not very, you know, critically. They didn't talk about manga they didn't like much on their old podcast. But that set out. And I think, it, you know, as always, Maxie outlined their criticisms in a very fair way or, or like a very constructive way, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, even though I disagree with some of them. Now, on the subject of cancelled manga, I really found uh, this video from the anonymous character on Wiz's Shonen Jump Imprint's like, 7 Discontinued Manga. Really, really good in terms of an overview of kind of manga that Wiz has stopped publishing over the years. These, of course, include Boabo, Gintama, Reborn, Kurohime, Beat the Vandal Buster... Act Dodge, and yeah, Strawberry 100% the last one, and yeah, so they did a good job of just going over how this published a series, going over the chances of, like, could the series ever be picked up and republished, and the different factors that could inform such a decision being made, or why it won't be. I think it was a really great overview of those seven discontinued series, and yeah, I thought I really enjoy Riley's videos, so I, I really enjoyed that one as well. I thought it was a great, you know, discussion of them. And, yeah, definitely check it out if you want to, you know, get a blast from the past and see, like, oh, yeah, we did stop publishing these. I wish that they would try again, but maybe, you know, they will one day. At least there seems, I think, to be hope for some more than others. Viz, if you're listening, I'm I'm waiting on Gintama to come back. I'll buy that day one. Just wanted to put that out there. Anyway, continue. <laughs> now, on the subject of cancel manga running in Shonen Jump, I really enjoyed Smizzle's video on the worst manga Shonen Jump. Now, this is a fun little click like misnomer of a title because they aren't talking about like the worst manga of Shonen Jump in terms of a critique. They're talking about a series literally named worst in Shonen Jump that was ran pretty early on in the magazine's history in like 1971 it began its serialization. This comes from Komoro Kotaro and it's a really interesting little old series because it's basically kind of a chronological type story kind of like Jojo's where there are three distinct phases of the story each with their own protagonist and a supporting character hmm. in one of the earlier parts becomes a protagonist with a later part so it's super interesting it's basically a post-apocalyptic monster with like bat-like demon monsters kind of hunting on humanity after like you know big apocalyptic events and stuff like that so 
it basically looks at humanity trying to survive, like, you know, the end of the world and, like, these crazy monsters and stuff. And what really strikes out to me about the series is also the arc, because uh, the creator, Kotaro Komodo, was an assistant of Tesca, and so hmm. their art style, like, really resembles Tesca to the point where when I saw the thumbnail initially, and then when I saw the images in the video, I was like, whoa, this is like a dead rhythm for Tesca's style. Like, this guy really matches it. If you weren't to tell me that this was done by someone different, like, I could be fooled, because there's such similar sensibilities. And I thought it was super interesting the discussion of the series and the discussion of this creator because this creator is not a terribly well-known one but this series was interesting because even though it's a short-lived one it only lasted about four volumes it ended on its own terms and was fairly popular for its time but because you know it's an older like 50 year series it really does not get brought up much but it's really interesting because it's of course like political and social commentary that you know we don't see a lot these days but it's definitely very much in line with stuff like devil man and barefoot again back in the day in terms of like it's uh you know political and social commentary you know being anti-war and stuff like that and so i thought that was a really fascinating angle to it that was discussed in the bison is on the video and uh, yeah, I also thought it was interesting for being kind of unjump and how dark it was too, as how they described it. But I also thought the creator's history was interesting because they didn't, you know, create a ton of uh, super popular follow-up works. But one of their follow-ups in Jump, Outer Wreck, was actually quite popular early on, but... It was cut in favor of Mossinger Z because Jump Editorial at the time didn't want like two sci-fi manga. Which is an interesting idea, topic of conversation that, you know, Trinzel then kind of transitions into, well, we started to see that this year. We started to see that in the current Jump. Where Phantoms here, despite its early success and sales, seemingly was cancelled in the magazine. We don't really have an official reason why. But perhaps they just felt it was too similar to other things in the magazine like Jujutsu Kaisen. Well, meanwhile, series that weren't as successful as it out of the gate, like Roboco, High School Family, those are continue to thrive because we know that Jump's current editor really has a thing for comedies. So it's kind of interesting conversation about how some series thrive and are successful, not necessarily just in the grounds of its popularity, but because of like editorial support and how relevant they are kept in pop culture and media even though like yeah this was a really interesting quality series both of these creators works but they just have kind of fallen in obscurity over time because just no one brings them up and talks about them much but i thought it was a really cool spotlight on this really interesting classic jump series that i would love to read one day because it looks so interesting and yeah so that's also a wreck for anyone out there interested in uh, picking up classic Marvels of the past, the old Shonen Jump titles. But yeah, I thought Smithel did a really good video on it. And I, I really appreciated them putting it on my reindeer because now I'll definitely keep an eye out. And, you know, if there's ever an opportunity to recommend someone pick this up, I definitely will. I'm interested in reading more of uh, Kataro Komura's work. I'm definitely checking this out. And then finally, my last shout-out for this episode is related to uh, the content barrage, although it's not a topic we kind of dwelled on much. But, you know, Barrage, he interacts with 
the father of the prince and the king, but there is no mother around or mentioned. And it kind of plays into this expectation in a lot of Shonen series that the mother is usually an absent part of the hero's journey, a hero's life. And this was a concept explored really well in an anime-fan piece called The Dead Mothers of Shonen, which basically describes how a lot of mothers, as depicted in Shonen manga, tend to fall into two categories. The mother is either just kind of a passive paragon of virtue and morality, or they are unknown and they're irrelevant to the son's hero's journey, and is basically just, you know, a prop, essentially, you know, like a a necessity for the hero to exist, but otherwise the series doesn't complete this interest in them. And I thought it was a pretty good overview of different examples of how different mother figures fall into different characters, how, like, yeah, a lot of mothers in the series are really not paid the due attention or interest that fodder figures usually have. And in particular, it does stem from this idea, it seems, you know, infamously Oda once said that, oh, Luffy had to leave his mother behind to go on a journey. That's what all men do, like, to go on adventures. They gotta leave their mothers behind. Mothers are the antithesis of adventure with that. And kind of how, you know, that damaging philosophy really kind of pigeonholes women and mothers into just this super passive reductive sexist gender role and that really sucks and then they close the article mentioning like a good example of a mother figure in the character of Liza and Medina this who is also another dead mother but you know is more of a source of inspiration to the hero and clearly is developed more as a nuanced flesh out character as that story goes on and i you know i think there could have been other examples also brought up but it's a very interesting topic and it's definitely a big criticism in a lot of shonen stories is that the shonen mother either they're not around or they're there just to be moral support but not much of a character in their own right but it's important to show nuanced mother figures and flesh out the roles of women in your stories to challenge these traditional and sexist ideas of like what womanhood and what motherhood is. So yeah, hopefully we see more positive, more varied examples of mother figures in the series going forward. But I think this article did a good job of showing uh, how a lot of authors do them a disservice and also just, you know, outright don't even acknowledge them at all, as in the case of Raj, where the mother doesn't show up at all. So, yeah, that does it for my shout-outs for this episode. And, yeah, I think we can now head up into the close-off of our show. All right. And, uh, yeah, I guess uh, j- just to say real quick, uh, join us next time as we cover My Hero Academia Smash, a uh, spinoff for Coma Gag Comedy based on My Hero Academia uh, with our good friends Kendra and Luke, both of which are the hosts of their own My Hero Academia podcast, respectively. So, uh, yeah, please look forward to that. I had a lot of fun talking about that series, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, initially you didn't think you would, but we turned it around and we found a lot of things to say. I was going to say, just despite how I felt in the beginning, I had a lot of fun talking about it. But um, that's what you can look forward to next week. And uh, I guess until then, we can go ahead and uh, start plugging everything involving our show and everything that we're doing. Uh, Lum, where can the good people find you? 
You can find me at Lumromiasho on Twitter at Lumromiasho to write. Please just like Animation Revelation and Analyst Writers at Lumromiasho. That's where you can find me. It also read my work on all that channel.com. We got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews coming out, so look forward to more on there. That's also where you can find the other podcasts I do independently, including Manga Mavericks at Movies, show where we talk about anyways primarily, as well as hashtag Lumsquad, the show where you know my good friend Andrew AC Yoshimara discuss the wonderful Lucky World. We're gonna talk about how to use your We've been having a lot of fun going through the manga as it releases new volumes, and we also have been starting chatting about the movies now that they're on Crunchyroll. So we've been a lot of fun doing that. Look forward to more coming out soon, and look forward to some more early episodes up on the Patreon. So if you want to check some of those out early, uh, go there. But also, yeah, I mean, Patreon.com slash Mavericks, just to mention. But also, yeah, if you enjoy the art I do for the show, the art I make for all the podcasts I do, and as well as the illustrations and animations I make in general, you can find all of that on my Instagram, at SidArtworks. All right, but as for me, I'm Colting. You can find me on Twitter, at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a few other podcasts on the side besides this one which you can find links to over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Over there, I have a page dedicated to basically whatever podcast I'm doing at the moment, uh, including some past projects that I don't work on anymore, uh, or even uh, I mentioned some guest spots at the top of the show. Uh, You could find those and more on that page as well. I try to keep that page as up to date with all my guest spots that I've done over the years on other podcasts uh, as much as possible. Again, that's at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. If you want to listen to any of my other podcasts, you'll find links to all my other stuff there. But as for uh, Manga Mavericks and All Comic, uh, basically you can find every episode of Manga Mavericks over at allcomic.com. That's where we post every episode first, unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, We mentioned at the top of the show, but basically if you sign up for our $2 tier, uh, once again, you will get access to select episodes of the podcast Uh, depending on when we have them edited and uh, if we're not ready to put them up on our main feed, we'll put them up on our Patreon early. Again, like we mentioned at the top of the show, you can listen to our LGBTQ manga discussion uh, that won't be up for at least a few months, probably in November or so. But if you want to listen to it before, then for just $2, you can listen to it right now. Uh, You could have also listened to this episode about Barrage at least a whole week in advance, uh, and so, yeah, just sign up for a $2 tier at the very least if you want access to at least select episodes of the podcast. Admittedly, that tier really depends on, like, our schedules and when we have certain things done and everything. So, uh, if you want, like, a more reliable string of regular content, uh, you want to sign up for a $5 tier in which uh, we upload at least one bonus podcast at the end of every month. We've mentioned Maxi a lot this episode, and if you like listening to our discussions with them on whatever we want to talk about, whether it be Cancel Jump comics or just anything manga in general, like we usually do, uh, you want to go listen to our latest bonus episode, which is also the start of a, kind of an irregular miniseries that we're going to do, basically when we kind of have the time to uh, sit down and record with Maxi, where we talk about uh, different manga magazines. On our first installment, we talk about a lot of different, like, you know, shonen magazines, basically all of the ones that you know, including, like, Weekly Shonen Jump, Weekly Shonen Magazine, Weekly Shonen Sunday, and a lot of discussion on Jump Square in particular. Um, So, yeah, if you want to hear us talk about different manga magazines, the first installment of that podcast series is up on our Patreon at the $5 tier, and you can listen to that and so much more over at over at our Patreon at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Again, uh, it's really the best way to support us. It really helps us keep the lights on and our podcast up online. 
And yeah, when you support us on Patreon, you help us make uh, cool content like that. So again, we would really appreciate any patronage you throw our way again at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. But as for everything else, uh, you can follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow manga mavericks specifically, you want to follow us at manga underscore mavericks or at tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Basically, over there, we have different excerpts of the podcast you can watch, and uh, as well as some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, email us anything at manga mavericks at gmail.com. Uh, do you have any thoughts on Barrage or any of Kohei Horikoshi's works? Uh, do you have any thoughts on manga in general? Uh, tell us what you're reading. Tell us what you want to hear us talk about on the show. Uh, email us anything about manga or the podcast or anything in general, and we'll we'll read it on the show. We love getting emails. Uh, and if you want your email read on the show, again, send us those over at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or basically wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on so many different platforms at this point. Uh, but especially on Apple Podcasts, it would really help if you leave us a rating and review because uh, it really helps the visibility of our show and helps us get out there to more listeners. And just in general, we love getting feedback from you guys. So uh, anything you want to leave in those reviews, uh, you know, just let us know how we're doing. We love getting feedback from you guys, especially since we use that feedback to make the show that much better. And uh, yeah, I think that's going to be about it for the show. Uh, this has been episode 174 of the Manga Mavericks podcast on allcomic.com. We will see you guys next time for episode 175. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.